0: one constant that's been there the whole time has been young earth creation and it's you know we are stubbornly still here and that might embarrass a bunch of people but it's because this is the natural way to read the text and the deeper you go into the text the more it makes sense
1: sorry no follow-ups
0: ah apologize i can't follow up uh no no dang it okay yeah 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 they ask you how you are you just have to say that you're fine when you're not really fine but you just can't get into it because they would
2: never understand
3: The the young earth creationist view that the earth is only 6,000 years old and God created everything in six days. That view was not the only view in the early church. And that view had mostly died out, if not entirely by about the 1850s. And then it had a revival because of seven-day Adventism. So in 1 Corinthians 15, it says Adam is the first man. Okay, fine, but read the context. It also says Jesus is the second man and the last Adam. Do we actually think Jesus was the second person created?
2: hey everyone this is what your pastor did tell you today i'm on with inspiring philosophy we're going to be talking about his recent debate he had at the ccv2 capturing christianity conference the debate is over the compatibility of evolution with genesis and it's against dr marcus Frost. how are you doing today michael just tell us general thoughts about the debate
3: yeah thanks for having me yeah i thought the debate went well i was happy with what i was able to get across uh i again i think uh, uh young earth creationism just falls short when it comes on biblical interpretation i don't think my opponent was able to demonstrate the uh, uh his his side of the debate which would be that evolution and genesis are not compatible uh so i i was very happy with it, the outcome of it because i don't think that was ever demonstrated in the debate to be sure uh i think he's definitely one of the more sophisticated young earth creationists out there he's definitely not a ken hoven uh, for sure uh, definitely one of the better debates I've had on young earth creationism because the opponent prepared more than, I, than uh, they have in the past. So I was much happier about that. Uh, but overall, I was happy with the outcome. There was nothing in the debate we saw which demonstrated that Genesis or Christianity in general is not compatible with evolution. So, I mean, I was happy with that.
2: Awesome. Yeah, well done. I was definitely impressed by, um, I mean, obviously you, you, I, I agree with a lot of your views, and if you, I don't know if there's even anything I disagree with, maybe I'm not undecided on. But uh, so I, that, that's kind of assumed that I would I would uh, think you did well. But <laughs> uh, I mean, Dr. Marcus Ross, though, like he, I was seriously impressed. He brought some views that I would never heard of. Um, you brought a couple of views that most of us probably haven't heard of. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was that was definitely nice to hear, and uh, definitely definitely one of the better debates. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that we're not here to uh bash michael's opponents we are not here mm-hmm. to uh say we won or we were right or uh we're simply talking about what uh in this discussion what was what how are we, how are we going to find truth here so specifically like if michael or dr ross didn't didn't respond to a point that's important because it's going to play into our ability to um comprehend like which is the better view so like if if you don't have a good response then you know that that's almost like you lose a point but not in the winning skill but you know in the search for truth um any well, thoughts on well, that you want to add there
3: well i've said before when people are commenting so and so want a debate it just makes me facepalm even when people have said about me because how do you win a debate <laughs> like uh i i've said before in in debate reviews that i don't like using the terminology and i've tried very hard not to use it for years now because i just don't think that's what we should think of when it comes to debates uh i i've seen debates where i've done really well in, and then i go look at the comment section like my debate with matt dillahunty and it's just all pro him and i'm like okay whatever uh but that's just people are going to say my guy won regardless of what actually happened that's just typical human bias. So I try to use languages like I think I did well, I hope and I always hope my opponent does well, because it's a debate. You're both sides are supposed to present different views to help give the audience new perspectives on different things. And I wish more debates were like that. And I wish people would realize that's what debates are. They're not competitions.
2: I appreciated uh, something that you said, or basically the way you operate the debate. I don't know if there was many times at all where you interrupted dr marcus ross and he did a pretty good job too uh you know obviously when you're on the debate it's a lot it's really easy to just to interrupt because you want to explain your view but there was a lot of times where you kind of like conceded like the discussion for just a second just so he could finish his point and i I thought that was really cool so yeah i mean i didn't
3: really i didn't really feel like any of my views were threatened in the debate so i can let him talk i mean it it i didn't really feel like oh no i'm losing this kind of thing or i'm I'm not getting my points across. I felt like I I made my points quite
2: clear up to that point. So there was no need to interrupt them. That's an interesting approach, I like that. Okay, Mm -hmm. so let's go ahead and get into it. Um, So we're gonna start at the cross-examination because pretty much all of the points that were made in the opening statements of Michael's and Dr. Ross's were uh, repeated later. So we're just gonna get right into it. And then uh, we're gonna stop midway or um, along the way and just give general thoughts on it. So let's let's Mm -hmm. go ahead and do that.
3: So you mentioned in,
2: Genesis, the flood account, the use of the Hebrew coal implies
3: universality, is that correct? It can, yes. Do you, what about Genesis 2.9 where it says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Do you think the fear of every animal, including my cat, is upon him, humans? Like do you think that implies universality as
0: well? Uh, general principle, yeah. So and it's a general cat, principle. And your cat does fear you, I believe. I mean, he no. loves you, and because fear is not something that is always fear and trembling, fear is a, a reverence and an awe. We fear the Lord not simply because we are worried that He will destroy us, but when we come to know Him through Jesus Christ, we still fear the Lord in reverence, love, and awe.
3: I, I, I hope your cat does that. I don't think my cat has any reverence for me. Let's be honest.
2: Something I want to talk about with you was how it talks about like the whole world, the, the, you know, it seems like. Uh, I don't know if I may, maybe I missed it, but it seemed like you never mentioned anything about like what the ancient reader would have like seen it as, you know, obviously they don't have this view of a scientific globe. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know there's different views on Genesis of as like, whether, you know, the flood was, was global in regards to like how they saw it, but it wasn't actually global or, or that it was, it was local and they knew it was local or something like that. Um, so like I was wondering what your approach was there because you didn't bring that up. And um, I mean, doesn't that like completely destroy the idea? Like if he did, the writer doesn't even know it's global, then then how can you say it's global?
0: Well, I'm
3: giving the benefit of the doubt.
2: Like um, obviously we would say this inspired by God
3: and God knows the earth is a globe. I was more focusing on the fact that in the account they're using hyperbole. It's pretty clear when you compare Genesis five and Genesis, or Genesis 5, eight five and Genesis eight nine, or when you look at the same type of language in Genesis nine two, okay, that, that it's this all encompassing, encompassing languages that does not mean it's literally everything that's possible. So I was generally trying to point that out, but you're you're correct that in the ancient world they would not have thought of the world as a globe. They would not even have realized, you know continents that you know on the other side of the earth existed they just sort of saw it as their local area and that was all flooded to them Uh, but again the flood account does not really necessarily teach the entire earth was flooded because it uses just hyperbolic language and we can see the hyperbolic language when we compare genesis 8 5 to 8 9. you can see that you know the tops of mountains are already uncovered but you can still talk about the water being on the face of the whole earth
2: yeah, that makes sense. I think if you want to make the argument that the the flood was local, you have to say, I, th- I think it's really strong that if you bring all these different points of like, uh, I guess, metaphorical language to like, like dra- over drastic, kind of like Revelation does, where it's like hyperbole, like super big, everything's going wrong, everything's going crazy, apocalyptic mm-hmm. language, that kind of stuff. Um, I think that's something that you did well there on the face of the whole earth yeah. you, whole earth yeah well, genesis 8:5
3: it says tops of mountains were seen yeah so how could the water be on the face of the whole earth if they can see tops of mountains
0: yeah the the answer for that relies on the context about genesis 8 that i was just showing remember how genesis 8 is paralleling the creation account so when the mountains rise that is paraly, uh paralleling the third day of creation mm-hmm. and the waters of the earth are not yet in the seas where they ought to be so the waters covering the face of the earth is an indication that the waters are not where they should be in the seas. They are still over the land itself. So uh, you're reading that a little too woodenly here of saying, oh, because there's mountains, the water's not covering the earth. No, the water's all over the earth. The mountains are rising. The flood is going down. But there's still no place for the dog to go.
3: But you would agree it's not hyperliteral. There's still land that's seen, correct? Like mountains yeah. or land. Would you well, agree? Yeah.
0: Okay. But also the water is over the earth. Correct. So right. that that's exactly what the text is telling us. But not the whole earth. No, uh, well, the, the whole earth as far as there's water everywhere, and there's peaks and
2: mountains that are showing up. Okay, I'm gonna move on. You guys talked about the the dove, the that it wasn't at the, it didn't it didn't ever get to the land, and then it comes back, and then later it talks about how the waters were, the the were visible. So like it doesn't make sense to say that if the waters were visible. Or it doesn't make sense to say the tops of the mountains were visible if the if the dove couldn't get there uh so what were you thinking like like you you kind of like moved on but like what do you think about about that view that dr ross gave there
3: well i didn't fully understand what he was getting at it it didn't really make sense he can see that the mountains were seen now obviously the dove couldn't get to them it was too far away and I, i i accept that but that's not the point I was trying to get at. The point I was saying is what the author says. The waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Okay, you, you don't, you can't say that and it be literal. If there's actually, you can actually see dry land in the distance, tops of mountains. So, I moved on to that point because I kind of feel like I got what I needed out of there. It, this sort of special pleading, yes, the flood account is all encompassing. But not when it comes to eight, five, and nine, then we have to be a little bit more charitable with it. I'm like, okay, you, you can't have it both ways. It's either encompassing the entire globe when it says all the earth, or you gotta accept that, you know, there's a little bit of hyperbolic language in there. It's like, and that seems to be what happens when we compare eight, five, and eight, nine.
2: Yeah, well, I don't does does his solution actually solve the problem? Because in this situation, the dove still doesn't have a place to land.
3: Yeah. I don't think his solution solves the problem because again, it's what the author is saying. The dove found no place to set its foot because the water was still in the face of the whole earth. If the author had said the dove found no place to set its foot because the mountains or, or the dry land was too far away, that would be a different story, but that's not what the text says. So we have to go on what the author is
2: saying. So Dr. Marcus Mar- Marcus Ross, he makes this really big point in the video that the, the Genesis 8 8- in Genesis eight and then Genesis one, it has all these parallels you have, you have Hmm. Noah and you have, uh, all these different like things that seem to happen and, um, it'll be on the screen, but all these different similarities. And my question for you is what do you think, like, what do you think that is? Um, what, what do you think? Like, what why do you think what do you think explains that view the best
3: well there are a lot of similarities between Genesis 1 and Genesis 8 Genesis 8 is sort of like parroting the creation accounts or following the same sequence and scholars have pointed this out for a long time that does not mean though the entire world was flooded that's that's a logical leap for example the temple of Solomon was meant to uh, be a mimic of the cosmos as a whole that does not mean it the temple was covering the whole entire earth. Uh, just because you have something mimicking, something that happened prior to it, that does not mean it's doing the exact thing. And also, you would be, we would be assuming, uh, we would be presupposing that Genesis 1 is about the creation of all material things and that Genesis 8 is about a uh, recreation of all, the, of all the things. It's not necessarily what's happening. And even on a young earth creationist view, you cannot take the account this is entirely a whole new recreation event, for example, uh, the sea creatures would not need to be recreated because, you know, they, they um, were still in the ocean. Animals are not do not need to be recreated. They just exit the ark. Same with humanity, not needing to be recreated. So although it sort of parallels the literary structure, Genesis 8 par- parallels the literary structure of Genesis 1, that does not mean it is ex- doing it in the exact same way. It's sort of just parroting motifs to show that there's a sort of God uh, sort of bringing about the new uh, land that was flooded and how it's going to just sort of be sort of like that kind of thing. I think you're reading too much into this if you think it shows that this was necessarily a global
2: flood. The text does not necessarily show that. You have to read it into it. Okay, so it seems like there's three options here, okay? They either, each of the points happened purely by coincidence, and the writer simply is trying to include the details that are similar, kind of like some people say in the in the Gospels Uh, another option is to say that it all happened miraculously like you know whoever what the writer was just recorded what he saw and it just happened to match it and of course you have to ask like why would God do it just to make a literary point Uh, another option is to say that the writer was just making a literal or a literary point and it didn't actually correspond that way or you could just say that we're just seeing things in the text aren't there so like, I mean, I'm specifically thinking of things where it's like Noah does what God commanded or Adam transgresses, like you have opposites, but then sometimes it's Noah walk with God and Adam hides when God walks in the garden or they both have three sons. Like you have these weird similarities that don't seem like just a coincidence. So what do you think about that specifically?
3: Well, I think we should compare this to what Jesus does in the Gospels and what the authors do. They're constantly comparing him to the times in the Old Testament, like Matthew is painting Jesus as another Moses. Mark compares Jesus often to the apocalyptic prophets. So Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 parallels the story that happens in the Old Testament. Jesus wandering in, uh, in the wilderness for 40 days parallels Israel's wandering for 40 years. Often authors would see literary parallels that happen and then they would make that connection uh not making things up just noticing the similarities and wanting to highlight them while ignoring the differences so i think when the authors of genesis are writing about noah they're specifically going to highlight the things we knew about him that paralleled adam on purpose they're going to see things during the flood account and they're going to highlight that to parallel what they knew about genesis one so That's often what we do. Uh, We do it today. Like You can see JFK being compared to Camelot. Sometimes uh, modern presidents are compared to past presidents. I remember hearing uh, news articles claim that Barack Obama was like Abraham Lincoln in a lot of ways, and then they would highlight similarities. This does not mean that they're literally the same thing happened or it's all all been planned out or it's all been made up. It just means people see patterns, will see connections, and then we will not notice or we won't highlight the differences as much. So I think that's what's going on as well here.
2: Gotcha. So I just just to, for the people that don't fully buy in. So I mean, this is a lot of coincidences, and not only that, but these are the <laughs> like the two main people of the Genesis one to eleven narrative. You have Adam. You have Noah. The two biggest stories, as far as like, I mean, maybe we're just drawing it out, but like. You know, Adam takes a big part of the narrative. Noah takes a big part of the narrative, Uh, very influential people. And you're saying that it's, it isn't isn't a coincidence that it's there, but it is a coincidence that all of these facts line up.
3: No, I'm not necessarily saying it's a coincidence. I'm saying that a lot of things happen in the past. Uh, Often we will just highlight the similarities and then just not mention the differences in the account. So, I mean, people will want to try to make a comparison between Barack Obama and Abraham Lincoln. And then they'll write an article noticing the similarities, listing them, but they won't notice they won't notice or list the differences. And they're doing this to make literary parallels on purpose, to show, to show how like he's sort of like the new Lincoln. Let me just highlight all the times that things lined up to show how he's the new Lincoln. Likewise, you can do the same thing with Noah. You're, you may have longer or more exhaustive oral traditions about him but when you write the account you only are going to write the similarities down that way you can make these literary parallels i want to talk about genesis one some more so you believe oh, yeah. uh seven literal days so Gen- yeah. so day one was one day evening and morning yeah. day two evening and morning so classic question why was the sun if the, if the sun was not created until day four what is causing evening and morning why is what is the earth rotating around so that there's an evening and a morning without a sun there light. Does light exist in our universe without a source? If God wants it to. So there's just light somewhere floating around.
0: Is there another light source that's causing evening and morning? We don't know. Right? The Bible simply tells us God says let there be light. So he created some kind of light and he doesn't gather that light together into something like the sun until day four. So then there's some sort of other evening and morning it's evening and morning is defined as a condition in which the earth is experiencing light and dark. Wherever that light came from, we have light and dark that makes evening and morning. Okay. So, I mean, is that a problem for, for God to create light before he makes the sun? Well, my Sorry, just is, questions
1: from Michael. So
0: my question oh, okay. is, is like, is like,
3: if we know evening and morning is directly caused by the sun, Today. why would we expect it to be a, 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 there not to be a sun there? Because we know that's dictated, evening and mornings are dictated by the
0: fact that the earth rotates around the sun. Evening and mornings are dictated in Genesis 1 by the fact that there is light and dark. The fact that the sun comes in later is a way of deprioritizing the sun uh, in cosmology. So
3: just light with no source though, correct? We have
0: light from some
3: source, we just don't know what it is. Okay, would that be adding an additional light source to the text that the Bible does not speak of? Because it just says light generally speaking whatever the source of
0: light is, God created the light. Okay. So moving so God on. made light. And later on
2: that light became the sun. So you That's mentioned
0: pretty much what the text tells us.
2: Gotcha. Okay. So in part of the debate, you asked the classic question, how is the light in day one before day four? And his response was a little mixed. Like he kind of said, I don't know what it was. And then he also says that it, he said it, he he i think he inferred that it was even possible that the light was just there and there was no source at all which i <laughs> thought that very interesting um that, so i wanted to, i wanted to ask make you any just sense, no. <laughs> i wanted to ask you like one like why is this such a big deal i mean obviously you have a lot of young earth creationists that just don't care about that fact they don't struggle with that idea and two like what about his idea is so in your opinion, implausible.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, he tried to argue that maybe the light was just there without being formed to the sun yet, which doesn't make sense. So like the main problem with this, that a lot of young earth creationists just sort of brush over is that it says there on day one and day two and day three, there was evening and morning. Okay, if there was just some light out in the universe, you don't have evening and morning because the earth is rotating around the sun that's cause causing evening and morning. If the earth is just there and there's no sun, what is it rotating around, which is causing evening and morning light. Okay. Then the sun is there because wh- what are you saying? So there was light created on day one and then it was just sort of like this big gooey thing. And then on day four, it was like more compressed into the sun. I don't, I don't get what you're, you're saying here. It's the sun at that point. If it's causing evening and morning on day one, two, and three, we're talking about the sun, therefore the sun is already there. This is why scholars like Walton uh, have put forward the functionalist account, because it doesn't make sense to say that the sun and moon are not there if you already have evening and morning. If, again, evening and morning are entirely necessary, or they're entirely dependent on the sun. The sun is necessary for evening and morning. How do you get around that? And so young earth creationists have to jump through all these hoops to sort of explain that away. But the problem is when they do that, they're basically admitting to us that they're not taking the plain reading of the text; they have to add additional assumptions, additional context to explain this thing. They just can't take the plain reading; they have to add their additional context to explain this stuff.
2: Yeah, and that makes sense. Quite okay. honestly, their
3: quite honestly their expo- explanations to get away from that just don't make sense.
2: Hmm. So, I mean, obviously, you have different interpretations of that view that aren't younger earth creation. What do you take? Like, why do you think? What do you think the te- the writer is trying to describe there?
3: So, you know, as I I mentioned in the debate, I mentioned Jean Bottero in that the idea that in the ancient world, something did not really come into the sphere of existence until it was given a name or as Walton says, given a function. So the sun is there, but it's not been given its functions until day four. It's not been given its purposes until day four. So the general idea is that you have evening and morning on those days, uh, but it's not been brought into the sphere of existence because it's not been identified yet by the creator. And that's very important and so we need to read that with that ancient cultural context we cannot force our modern understandings of how things exist on the text that's just not how ancient authors would have thought of these things
2: yeah so you mentioned ancient near Eastern context so as you know you know you have egypt you have the new you have uh other creation texts where before the sun is created there's light like the 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 main creator god is the thing that's shining and then you you also have god being explained the same words you know you've you have the ben sanhope has talked about you know his little seals that that show you know god's like the little light person uh, mm-hmm. so you don't think that's a credible view that what it's what it's trying to point out is that god is giving the light
3: well, what were you saying that god is like the source of light in this instance
2: yeah because it seems like that's what the other creation texts are doing so why wouldn't that be like some common belief
3: well for one it seems that god is distinguishing himself from the light that he is putting there it says let there be light when there should already be light when the wind of god is hovering over the face of the water so i don't think that's necessarily what's going on i think it's more in line with the understanding of how it's being used in jeremiah 4. it's just referring to the fact that it's now. Uh, functioning properly or it's being made to function properly. Whereas in Jeremiah 4, there is no light because the functioning has vanished from the region.
2: Gotcha. 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 Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, So you also have like, you know, if it's, (laughs) it'd be weird like for the God's light to be turned off in the morning and night like that. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, There's another,
3: there's another issue too. I mean, does, does God's light go away at some point? Like that's weird. Hebrews, Drew a lot from the creation account for, like, the Sabbath, for example. Like, they got the Sabbath from the fact that God rested on the seventh day, correct? In part, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, God seems to say that in the Ten right. Commandments. Do you think they would get other things from the creation account? Such as? Okay, well, Benjamin Kilker. Uh,
0: Says that, you I don't know, think they got him from the creation account. No. Yeah. Do you believe Adam was like a priest of creation? Like a priest in some sense, even if he was the first one? Yeah, Adam, Adam has, a, has a priestly role function sort of thing. I mean, it's a, it's a comparison. Do but... you believe the little biblical priesthood looked back to Adam as like the first
3: priest in a sense? Probably may have. So Benjamin Kilker has got an interesting argument. He says, read together with Genesis 1, the act of appointment implicitly dates to the eighth day, which links to the appointment of priests in Leviticus 9.1. So in other words, in the Levitical law, a, pre- a priest's appointment happened on the eighth day. If Genesis 2 is a sequel, Adam's appointment happens on the eighth day. Would that not align with scripture and make a more coherent account? Oh,
0: so you're, uh, so Adam was created on the eighth day? I would say possibly. I'm asking the clarification question. No. I would say, yeah, based on the implicit understanding
3: of Genesis 2 being a sequel, so that Genesis would be the next Genesis
0: 2 day. is the eighth day, but it's never said to be the eighth day. Well,
3: it's implied because did God rests on the seventh day and then picks back up if the land of Eden on the eighth day? All right. It's an argument. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Appreciate
2: that. You mentioned in your 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 talk uh, about the eighth day in regards to the priests. Can you go into a little more detail as far as what's going on in the, I believe it's the Leviticus accounts where you have seven days. I'm assuming that's the inauguration of the temple. And then on the eighth day, what happens there too?
3: So this comes from a scholar I've been working with a lot lately, uh, uh, Benjamin Kilker, and he wrote a a paper called Sacred and Profane Space. And he's arguing that against the documentary hypothesis, the idea there was contradictory traditions in the Pentateuch. uh, One of the things he uses is this idea of the ordination of the priest. In Leviticus, the ordination of a priest would happen on the eighth day. So it did not happen on the sixth day, did not happen right away. It would take it, it was an eight-day process. So he, he draws this to Genesis 1 and 2 to sort of show that these two texts are working together. They're not separate accounts that were sort of stitched together. One of his arguments is that, well, the Israelites were getting a lot of things from this account, like the Sabbath rest, for example. But the ordination of a priest would happen on the eighth day. Adam is sort of installed as the priest in the Garden of Eden. He is the first like, priest king figure. It wouldn't apply that, if that's what's happening, he's being installed as a priest, this would have to happen on the eighth day, because that's the way the the Levites understood the way a priest should be ordained. It should happen on eight days later. So they're sort of mimicking this tradition they got. That idea would suggest that uh, when young earth creationists say that Genesis 2 is sort of a recap of day six from Genesis 6, that doesn't work. It would need to be the eighth day, because you can't install a priest on day six. The priest is installed on day eight. And so that's why I brought that up to sort of address the idea that Genesis six is just some big elaborate recap of whatever of everything that took place on day six.
2: Okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so obviously Genesis two does use the word beyond, which is on the day at the same time, though, pretty much everything I've read kind of assumes that it's ongoing. So it's not specifically on that day. That's like a, but I don't know, maybe that could work with that view. Have you heard anything like that?
3: It could work with that as well. I have no issue. I'm just tr- say, thinking literally literarily speaking, hmm. uh, Genesis two takes place after the seven days of creation. So God right. takes a Sabbath threat and picks up again on you know the next the first day of the week, day eight. That's when Adam is installed. And you could even argue from a Christian perspective that have correlates correlations to Jesus as well. Jesus rises on the the eighth day or the first day of the week after you know Saturday being the Sabbath
2: interesting. okay. but of course, you have to mention like all the temple parallels, so if we're going to say <laughs> that all this temple stuff is going on and then we see another temple parallel, you have to take that seriously, don't you?:
3: Yes, I think you do, for sure.
2: Yeah. okay, so just to continue, um, oh, by the way, just to point out, like he, he, when you gave that argument, he says that that's an argument, and he doesn't actually respond. He gives well, he gives no response. Well,
3: I, I admire that. I think that was that was he that's the first time he heard it and instead of saying trying to come up with some excuse on the fly he says that's i'll think about it kind of then i think that's that's the proper way to handle that
2: yeah that's true that's very true uh all right so to continue first corinthians 15 adam is the first human
3: time and time again my question is is jesus the last human he is
0: the last in terms of he is the ultimate yes but is he the last literal physical human? He's the last Adam because mm-hmm. he is able to do what Adam did not. Right? I He's agree. Able to help us to attain eternal life and joy with, with God. So Adam
3: and Christ are set up in a special category. Adam being the first of the special category, sure. not necessarily. Christ. So Christ being the last human does not imply he is literally the last human. Why would that imply? That, why would you use that verse to say that Adam is definitely the first human? if the same language is not, does not imply Christ is the last physical human.
0: Okay, so so the question might be uh, put it this way, why does Adam have to be the first human and not simply an archetype? Hmm? Okay, well, all first things end up being archetypes. Adam as the first human being is going to be an archetype and he's also going to be the first person. Paul's theology is very, very consistent when you look at him from Acts to Romans, 1 Corinthians, letters to Timothy, Um, and you look especially also at the way that uh, Paul's theology influences the book of Luke, right, because Luke wrote Acts uh, with a lot of work from Paul. And when we take a look at that, Paul's theology is really built around Adam as the first of all human beings. Acts 17, from one man God made every nation of men and appointed the places and the times where they would live, Uh, and that is a clear allusion to, to Adam. And he's going back to Adam and and talking about that, not mentioning the name Adam, because he's talking to a bunch of Greeks who haven't read Hebrew scriptures. They don't know this. So when we take a look at that type of argument in Acts, when we see that argument in Romans, when we see that argument in uh, 1 Corinthians, reading Paul in some other way, as uh, for example William Wayne Craig has tried to do in um, his book, Quest for Historical Adam, uh, results in a rather if, you, if you're trying to parse out oh could it have been this way or this way or this way, it's all paul we don't want to read him schizophrenically
2: he mentioned in in the context of romans 5 he talks about how all things are archetype all first things are archetype and he's trying to say that adam is the first like he's an archetype because he's the first uh, and that seems could be related to paul's language do you, do you agree with that
3: well, yeah i mean walton uses the same language that paul or, or that adam and eve are archetypes for humanity i mean yeah i don't, I don't see it I didn't really see that help much of his arguments though
2: okay yeah so in the in the in the talk you kind of you never mentioned anything about adam and eve of from the best of my knowledge you didn't mention anything about adam and eve being archetypes like side uh dust of the earth uh, all the language where it stand it like kind of stands for all of humanity which is like you know that's walton's approach at this so i understand why you wouldn't but at the same time um that seems to point like in an opposite direction as far as like a journalistic account of what's going on and i, I think that's why walton is okay with saying like it might not have happened all 100 percent literally that way like do you agree with that sentiment
3: yeah i do it wasn't relevant to the bait the debate at hangs that's why i didn't bring it up because i was willing to grant him joshua swamidas's view that maybe adam and eva created de nova and then they just interbred with people outside of the garden so i was willing to grant that for the sake of the debate but I, I totally understand where walton's coming from that but it just didn't seem relevant for that time because swamidas has basically demonstrated that they could have been created
2: de nova and
3: you could still have a typical mainstream view of human
2: origins gotcha and you, I don't know if you, you didn't get, have much of a chance to respond to Act 17 that all came from Adam. Um No,
3: you... there was a lot of stuff in the Q and would have liked to respond to. I didn't get to, but <laughs> like that whole thing about Act 17. Yeah. We agree. All the nations came from Adam. When did nations start to show up? Or the, not for a long after Adam. Let's, let's be fair about that. Uh, you know, if you're placing Adam a couple of thousands of years back, you don't have nations yet. You basically have, hunter-gatherers, different tribal groups. But yeah, we totally agree. All the nations, especially all the nations, by the time that Acts was being written, all the nations would have been descended from Adam. This is what Swami has demonstrated. So again, that didn't actually help his point either.
2: Yeah. What about First Corinthians? He mentioned that and you definitely didn't get a chance to respond. Uh, do you remember what passage that was? First Corinthians 15? Yeah, that's what it was. Uh, did you want to give some thoughts on that?
3: So in 1 Corinthians 15, it says Adam is the first man. Okay, fine, but read the context. It also says Jesus is the second man and the last Adam. Do we actually think Jesus was the second person created? No. So it's comparing context. I'm going to compare you, this, this first man, the first priest, with the second guy I'm comparing you to. It's like, you know, if I said about we were in a lineup and we said, all right, number one, step forward. You know, number two, step forward, like a police lineup. Let's compare the first person and the second person in the line. It's kind of like that. It does not mean he's literally the first man because the context dictates it. Jesus cannot literally be the second human.
0: They shall surely die. Can you quickly clarify what you mean by that? Yeah, mot, temut. So when, in the day that you eat of it, that's uh, in the day is the Hebrew construct bayom. It means of when, uh, or of sorry, of the day. And it's basically an idiom of when. So when you eat of this, mot, temut dying you will die. So that phrase mot is used 13 times in the Old Testament and every single time it is uh, an indictment of certainty. Uh, a great example of where this is given and death does not follow immediately can be found in 1 Kings 2. Right, so you would agree that it's basically, it, in, in
3: a nutshell, it's an absolute infinitive couple with a finite verb. Robert Alter, Walton translated as doomed to die. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't mean, so it can refer to physical death, but it's just not going to
0: happen that day. It can happen later on. Oh, but it is physical death. I agree. When, when, when you get moat to mood. I agree. How did, (laughs) how does God
3: make that sentence though? Like he doesn't, does he change their bodies to make them mortal?
0: Like, is there any indication of that? He kicks them out of the garden, right? Right. And what was in the Access to the tree of life. Okay. If that is the only thing that made Adam and Eve immortal. I don't know. But we do know that if they got access to the tree, uh, to the fruit of the tree of, the, uh, of life, then they would be able to have immortality. Okay. Uh, last question, I guess I have. Romans 8,
3: where does it say, where does it mention Adam's sin is?
2: I, th- I, th- I thought it was really funny. This is the first younger creationist, which maybe I haven't talked to enough, that agreed with you that they lost life because of the tree of life. Like the, yeah, the I didn't was, cause death.
3: I was surprised how much Dr. Ross was willing to concede. I mean, he, he conceded my whole issue regarding subdue of Genesis one twenty eight. I thought his way to then get around that was a little ad hoc and didn't really support his point. But he did concede that as well, that they lost their immortality because of the tree of life. So, I mean, that just suggested Adam was already created mortal to begin with. And that fits right in line with what we've been arguing for, that Adam was sort of appointed to be a priest when he's re- referred to as dust it refers to his mortality uh and he was not you know this idea that uh before the fall there already was mortality so i mean i was i thought it was interesting he could see that and i was all happy with it romans eight where does it say where does it mention adam's sin is what uh subject creation to fertility oh
0: well it's an illusion so there's not a direct mm-hmm. reference mm-hmm. so maybe it could be happened prior to that like genesis 128 no. Again, talking we're talking about Paul and his very consistent theology about where sin comes from and where pain comes from and where death comes from, and he always roots that in Adam. You have to ask the question, okay, But he does not in
3: this verse, though, correct? It,
0: right, because Paul's not always just going to blurt out exactly what you want. He's going to make allusions. This is how language works. Um, and so in Romans chapter 8, what you've got is the creation was subject to frustration, futility, etc., by him who subjected it. So, who subjected it? Well, oh, I think the implication would be God. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. So when did God subject creation to futility? Well, I would argue based on Genesis 128 prior to that. I'm sorry? Ge- based on Genesis 128 prior to that. One uh, 128 prior to that.
3: Because he calls humanity to subdue creation. It already needs subdued in
0: that point. Oh, that's good. We'll we'll get to talk about subdue because yeah. there's something really that's time. going on in Genesis 1 with that.
2: So in uh, Romans 8, he talks about... Uh, he basically like alludes to that's the the mm-hmm. fall of the earth, right? The he alludes to that, but he doesn't really give much of a strong argument for that.
3: Which... No, and I did I did call him out on the um in the cross examination on this. It doesn't mention Adam, or it doesn't say that Romans eight does not say that creation was subject because of Adam's sin. It it talks about how creation has been uh, subjugated to uh, uh, issues. But it doesn't say when that happened. And I think this fits more in line with a, a, an actually a theistic evolutionist account, honestly, because we do agree this, that creation was um, subjugated or to bondage or corruption. And this is why God elected Adam and Eve to subdue it. In Genesis 1 and all mankind is called to subdue creation. Adam and Eve are then put in the garden to be the priest over this sort of like this operation. And of course, they fall. So now Paul is in the New Testament. He's saying now that Jesus has sort of redeemed us. Now you know creation's been groaning for this point, this this point of restoration. So that fits very much in line with the theistic evolutionist view. Uh, it just shows you that God has always been trying to work through humanity to make creation better. It was put on delay because of Adam, but now Paul can speak of it uh, back under way because now Christ is the real Adam who has redeemed us, and He is the one who is the proper priest.
2: Yeah. So. You know, you have the explanation, but it still seems like Paul's referencing something. So what is your explanation of what he's referencing?
3: Well, I don't know specifically what you mean in terms of he's referencing. I, I think he's referencing the fact that creation has been long waiting for the sun to be revealed. Uh, the creation was subject to fertility is what it says. Not willing, but because of him who subject subject subjected it. So I'm not sure what you're referring to there. I don't okay. think it well, doesn't who, specifically well, say Adam.
2: Who Who subjected it?
3: Well, I would say it's God has.
2: And where do you get that?
3: Well, I get it from, as I mentioned, Genesis one twenty eight. Okay. That creation was um, set up in a way so that humanity would subdue it. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8. The sons of God needed to be revealed. because This is what creation has been waiting for, because we have been called through God to make creation better. And that was put on delay because of Adam's sin. But you can see this idea already in Genesis 1, this idea that humanity is called to subdue creation, that it's not in a perfect state, we need to go out and make it better.
0: Genesis chapter one, verse one, you uh, cite Michael Heiser and Homestead uh, saying that this is an, a dependent clause that is dependent on Genesis chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse two. And yet you also favor Walton's um, functional view. Hmm? You realize that those authors are not in agreement with one another about how to take I, Genesis I, I'm one.
3: aware that Walton translates it as in the beginning, I don't agree with him on that. I agree with it when he talks about the days that's where I agree with him. But with Genesis 1-1, I don't agree with him there.
0: Okay, do you, do you realize that Walton translates it as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, because his functional cosmology requires him to do that? I think within his specific framework, yes. But I don't think I have to take all of his framework there. I can take parts of it.
2: Uh, that's going to be, oh, that's an interesting, interesting approach there. So here we have, uh, you know, he, he brings up Genesis 1-1, and he said, you know, the when God began to create, and he says that that and walton's view contradict now that was like very i don't know what to say about that i really don't he never it was it was, it was funny because it was the the there was the questions so you're not going to ask a question like how does that contradict um mm-hmm. I, I don't know maybe you could approach a different way and i don't know what you think about that but um you know he says yeah i couldn't answer that think- question unfortunately yeah, it's like, don't you think it contradicts? And you're like, no. And then, and it's like, okay. Well, I, well, I don't. It
3: <laughs> well, Robert Homestead says he holds to the temple inauguration view when I've asked him privately, and he's the one who's been putting forward this view. I think the uh, dependent clause reading of Genesis 1-1 only strengthens the temple inauguration view. I think it only strengthens, it only helps it in, in, in my regard, in my, in my belief. So I'm not really sure what he was going on it was really kind of a weird thing for him to do because he then at the end mentions scholars like heiser and john day that he cites and he doesn't agree entirely with them on their readings of genesis but he was able to cite them and i was like well wait a minute you weren't trying to attack me because i didn't agree entirely with kenneth matthews or walton but here you are at the end of the debate citing john day who you don't entirely agree with it so it's okay for you to cite someone you don't entirely agree with but if i cite someone i have to agree with them 100 percent that's a double standard, Doctor Ross, and that's not that's not the way we do this. So, unfortunately, yeah. I didn't think that was a very
2: fair assessment. Yeah. Well. Okay. First of all, <laughs> I, I interviewed John one. I asked him specifically about the when God began to create Ber- Ber- sheet in the contract, and <laughs> and he says, "Yeah, that supports my view." Great.
0: <laughs> if that's the way that it should be translated, that leads even more to the to support view that i take it doesn't have to be translated that way to support the view that i take but if if it is translated that way fine uh, that that makes my position even more firm
2: i was like yeah, and, I, 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 <laughs> and uh too i i it reminded me of the james Fort fodor the the debate you had with him where that was like half the debate like oh you're misrepresenting him and then or said person it's like i don't have to agree with everything
3: yeah, I don't understand this attack because you'll see people like Dr. Ross do this themselves. They'll cite scholars like John Day, who they don't agree with on a specific point of agreement, but then they'll turn around and go, oh, but you can't cite him because you don't agree with him 100%. That's a double standard. And that's not fair. Like that's a ridiculous sort of setup.
2: Yeah. But maybe, maybe I misunderstood him. Maybe.
0: So you quoted Matthews, and um, that's really interesting about Barah, because uh, you mentioned that he says, you know, Barah doesn't always have to mean physical creation. I agree. Uh, are you aware that uh, he believes Barah does mean creation ex nihilo in, in Genesis 1?
3: I am aware. But again, he, that's uh, something he has on the top of the text. Okay, so
0: you quoted him in order to support your idea that Barah could mean other things without following through his detailed excursion of why Barah means creation ex nihilo in Genesis 1-1?
3: I'm basically saying, look, this guy even admits this is not necessarily refer to new material creation. it can refer to new activity. So he may give these other arguments I don't agree with, but here I'm only saying, look, even Matthews
0: will say hey,
3: this can refer to new activity.
0: Matthews is simply saying that the uh, word Barak can have a range of meanings, right. but he then says the context of Genesis 1 dictates that meaning because context dictates meaning. So this
3: sounds like it's in a guild by association. I can agree with certain scholars here. No, 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 not no agree but, with him entirely.
0: But in this case, it's a question of scholarship because you're presenting Matthews as if uh, it's part of an agreement text with you. And yet 13 pages later, he's saying the exact opposite of what you're saying you can do with the text in that point. So is, is Matthews saying it can refer to new activity? Yes okay, that's all I'm saying. I did not say he agrees with my entire interpretation no, but he he definitely makes the point that it means creation ex and hilo and uh you're putting him
3: in i think a position he go- and I think he's like he adding supports what you're saying I think he's adding his modern context and there was nothing in Genesis one that would necessarily imply that
2: yeah so you got you did really didn't get much of a chance to uh you know talk about the what bara and assam means uh he did, he didn't challenge you on that, which I found interesting. he also yeah, didn't well- challenge. He also didn't challenge you on, um, you know, the material versus functional distinction uh, mm-hmm. uh, that Seth, uh, gosh, this is awkward that I'm forgetting his name, in and the, and the Q&A mentioned, he, he, di- he didn't mention that. And that's like one of the main arguments against the view or the popular arguments against the view. So I sound, found that interesting.
3: Yeah, we didn't have time to get into everything, of course. It just is what it is. So I'm sure he probably did have some objections of that. We just didn't have time to get into it, though. Uh, But again, I would argue, again, with the idea of what I brought up in my cross-examination, the idea of evening and morning existing without the sun being there. That alone is a pretty strong indication that what's sort of going on is functional accounts if evening and morning are already there, which necessarily suggests the sun is already there materially. I have a hard time seeing anyone get around that. And of course, scholars like D.A.G.A. Klein have noted that in day two, it's very much about the functions of the firmament and what their purpose are for, which is why it's being spoken of to begin with. You see this all through days one through three. They're very much focusing on the functional aspects, which Walton highlights, and I highlighted in my opening statements
0: as well. Tohu Vabohu, you, you go to uh, Jeremiah 4. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you read the text backwards from Jeremiah into Genesis, I'm curious. Oh well, no, I'm saying there's a comparison. Okay, there's a comparison, but uh, Jeremiah, I mean, what's the context of Jeremiah 4? Right?
3: Northern Kingdom of Israel destroyed. Yeah, and, yeah. and
0: Jeremiah is, um, you know, he's, he's making an excoriation, you mm-hmm. know, and, and he's making a lament. Um, why do you think that that lament means that we should read Tohu Vabohu in Genesis 1-1 the same way? Well, if he's able to
3: take this language and use it metaphorically to describe how a kingdom went from functioning properly to not functioning, it can be implies that that language was used in that cultural context to imply that something goes from functioning to non-functioning or non-functioning to functioning.
0: Yeah, but the entire premise of uh, there's a ton of creation imagery in that passage of Jeremiah 4 he's clearly borrowing from it to make a new type of argument. So why argue backwards from Jeremiah and then say, well, this is how we can understand what dohu bohu means in Genesis one. Well, I'm not, so I'm a little confused here on what you're trying to say, but I'll try to answer as best as I can.
3: I sure. mean, so basically what I'm saying is, look, someone in that culture, someone who wrote part of scripture was able to take the same language and use it in a metaphorical sense. It doesn't mean material annihilation in how he's using it. So if he understood this language it could mean that way. It's like, for example, if I said, I saw a car flying down the road. Okay? That's, I'm obviously using flying metaphorically. If I got it from like a line in a book about, uh, you know, like it likely implies that if you're going to see it somewhere else, that's also being used metaphorical. It doesn't mean I'm getting it from someone who used
0: it literally to begin with. Likewise Jeremiah could be doing the same thing. Okay, so Jeremiah can use the same word in a very different way than what it means in Genesis 1. He could or he could be using it in the same way. Yep, metaphorical language, that's the point. Right, yeah, the metaphorical if, language usually goes in a different direction than the original, so... Well, here's uh, the thing... Unless, unless you've got a flying car.
3: Well, I mean, if we have metaphorical language, if I'm using metaphorical language up here, like I said, you know, like, you know, don't screw the pooch, something like that. All right, you obviously mean that we understand that's an idiom in the culture, okay? We don't right. mean that if I got it from, you know, I heard someone else say it, that they were also using it, literally, would be horrible, but you get the point. I mean, you can see how some people can use metaphorical language that they got from other people that were also using it in a metaphorical sense.
2: Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and in reference to Jeremiah 4, you have uh, all this creation language, uh, you know, the Israel's, you know, being defeated or whatever, uh, the world's going to win kind of thing. Um, and you, you guys talked about, well, one, he's, uh, he, he mentioned, Dr. Ross mentioned that he's clearly borrowing to make a new type of argument. I guess, he's, I guess he's saying that the new argument is that that's a metaphor for what happened in Genesis or something like that, but the reverse?
3: Well, I mean, how does he know that? How does he know that Jeremiah would have thought of Genesis 1 as literally, and then he's going to use it metaphorically? If you're using metaphorical language in there, that implies that Genesis 1 could also be understood with metaphorical language as well with regards to Tohu and Bohu or the light. Uh, not being there or being there. You just can't say, no, 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 Genesis 1 is literal and Jeremiah is sort of borrowing from that to make a metaphorical point. No, that, that's special pleading. What in Jeremiah shows a distinction that he would have understood that Genesis 1 is absolutely literal, but he's allowed to then take the language and use it metaphorically. It doesn't it doesn't work like that.
2: Yeah. So I, I want to get into specifics here. What do you mean by metaphorical as far as you mentioned tohu Babuhu? but like, isn't that like the the disorganization that Walton refers to? Like that's that not like maybe not the chaos, but the, the unorder or disorder. Um, yeah,
3: it, it refers to like a sort of disorder or like I'm being unproductive. Robert Alter translates it as welter and waste. So now he says in verse 23 of, of Jeremiah 4, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. So it was welter and waste, let's just say, okay. I don't think the land was literally wasted. I mean, people came back and were able to use it. We know people were still in Samaria using the land. It was not a total waste. Uh, He's using it to describe how the Northern Kingdom is not functioning as it was supposed to. It's become a waste because of the lack of functions now. He also says in the heavens and they had no light. Okay, the sun was still shining on the Northern Kingdom of Israel. This is referring to the fact that the sort of the light of the functions of the Northern Kingdom have sort of gone away, that kind of idea. You know, I looked to and fro and there was no man. We know that's not true. We know there were still humans there. It mentions it in, I believe, uh, Kings, for example. Uh, there are no birds in the air. Or do we really think that? No, it's using the sort of language, again, to describe it, that you know the northern kingdom was functioning. And then after the Assyrians came in, it was not functioning as it was supposed to be. So i think that's what jeremiah is doing here and if jeremiah can use that language to describe northern israel why couldn't god use that same language when it comes to the earth of genesis 1.
0: so adam and eve i presented a number of different arguments for why we should be reading genesis 2 as part of genesis chapter 1. Uh, What do you do with the fact that the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 blends the two of these uh, things together such that they read as a unity, that Adam is the first man. I'm so glad you asked me that. Great. Okay, so
3: first of all, I'm not rejecting the scriptural view, I'm rejecting your interpretation of the scriptural view. I want to be clear on that. Now, with Genesis 1 or Genesis 5, okay, so you mentioned this. For one thing, it mentions language that we don't see in the earlier accounts. It says, for example, I will call them man, both male and female. We don't find that anywhere in there. Now let's compare this to Exodus five one seven. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Notice it does not mention that Jacob died. Are we to assume that No, but it mentions all that generation died and it implies it happens after Joseph. Are we to assume that this contradicts Genesis and it says that Jacob died in that generation because it refers to the generation that went down to Egypt that he died after Joseph. I don't think so. I think we cannot read too much into these brief statements and imply so much from them. Genesis 5, 1 to 2 is just giving us a brief recap of things it's already covered in much more detail prior. Look, Adam is, one, is a human. Humans were made in the image of God, male and female. He's able to pass his likeness down to his sons. I don't, want to, I don't think we can read too much into brief statements like this when we've already been given the full context prior to this, and we can see that there
0: can't read too much into brief statements okay so these are brief statements that are written by Moses he incorporates Genesis 1 Genesis 2 Genesis 3 Genesis 4 all into the five verses of Genesis 5 1 through 5 and yet we're not supposed to believe that Moses uh, or we're supposed to believe that Moses has actually had a disjointed set of humanity between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 through 4 Jesus didn't read it that way Paul doesn't read it that way doesn't seem like anybody in Scripture reads it that way. Cool. So, this is a really forced uh, attempt to invent a class of people that have no existence within the Scripture.
3: Well, Moses also wrote Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. And Genesis 1 speaks of humanity in general. And then he maybe told it off formula, implying there's another chapter change here. Then we see honing on two people. So, again, yeah, Gen- yeah. We could say narrative. that Moses wrote that That's part, great. but he also wrote Exodus 1. Yeah. Is he going to contradict himself? And is he implying that Jacob died after joseph i don't think so this is just a brief statement all of those people died jacob joseph all the brothers and we move on through the story we cannot just jump to the conclusion that this is somehow contradictory from that
0: uh no I, I think that uh looking at genesis 2 as a subsequent story is the contradiction i think that when you got moses and jesus in agreement it's probably a good thing to keep going with them
2: okay so this was a super interesting uh, argument he made here so uh, in genesis 1 and 2 he's arguing that they're the same essentially the same you know recapitulation um and he's coming from that argument because genesis 5 just he gr- essentially groups them together and mm-hmm. i want to get i want to get your thoughts on that because to me this is how i read it okay so first five one chapter five one says this is the book of the generations of adam and i see that as like a title statement i yeah. don't see that as like as part of it and if we're if that's the title statement then it made that the writer isn't putting Adam or Adam and Eve in the second line in between he's, it's, it's like, uh, it talks about when God created mankind, he made him the likeness of God, male and female created them. He blessed them and named them mankind. And they were created. So that's the, that's uh, you know, that's, that's the beginning. And then it talks about Adam and all that. So it seems like he's just describing what happened first and then what happened next. Like, is it, is that how you read it or are you do it different, differently?
3: Yeah, that's, that's how I generally read it. It's not, it's not saying that Adam was the first human. It's just saying, look, man was male and female are the image of God. So when Adam was able to have a son, he passed that same image or that same likeness onto his children and so on and so on. It, it's just a brief statement. We can't read too much into that when we've already been given the context of Genesis one, two. The only thing I wanted to point out in the debate is you just can't read too much of these brief statements because you'd have to do with Exodus 1 and assume that Jacob uh, died after Joseph because it doesn't mention his death specifically. We can't, we can't do that.
0: So the Toledoth, that's the, the transition point here. It says, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Jack Collins has noted something really, really insightful here. And that is that this phrase is what's called a chiasm. Now in Hebrew, that is when you have a set of, of statements that are reflected again in a, in a usually forward-then-backward sort of way. So listen to it again. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So we have a statement that it keys in from Genesis chapter 1. That is, the heavens and the earth created. Right? That's like Genesis 1.1 1, 1 right there. And then we have the Lord God. We have the covenantal name of God, uh, Yahweh. We have Elohim, the name that is used in Genesis chapter one. And then we reflect it all back as we focus on the earth when he made the earth and the heavens. And so Collins has noted that we can't break this thing up. This is a hinge point that is connecting the events of Genesis one with the events of Genesis two in a seamless fashion, not as a subsequent event, but actually as a continuation and expanding of the days on Genesis uh, of Genesis, sorry, Genesis chapter six. Um, and to to try to break that up or turn it into something else seems to go against not only Genesis 1 and 2, but 5 uh, over in Matthew, etc. So so
3: my my response to that is that we don't see any other place in Genesis where we see a Toledov formula and then it introduces a long recap of things that already is covered. It doesn't do that. It tends to say, we're going to continue on and show what comes after this thing. It seems like a very weird, as Walton and Heiser of others have noted, this is sort of saying, chapter 2, then God did this. And when it comes to Genesis 2, what's sort of happening here is it's focusing in on the land of Eden. It says when there's no bush, there's no man to till the ground. This is referring to how the, the land of Eden is wild and it's not been cultivated yet. Bush of the field is qualified and then it's referring to agriculture. It's not referring to this idea of, if some people say, that it's a recap or that it's a contradictory account. God has made the cosmos his temple, and now he hones it on Eden and says, look, in this land it's still chaotic, there's no man to till the ground, but I'm going to put my priests here, we're gonna set up a garden, they'll serve, they'll tend to the garden, and this will be where I'll meet with humanity. So I, I, don't, I don't see this as a recap, it seems like it's falling forward. And with the idea of the installment of priests on the eighth day, as Kilker has pointed out, this seems to just flow naturally that God rested, it took his Sabbath rest, day seven, day eight, back to work, priest appointed now.
0: It's, it's an interesting way to, to read the text. Uh, I wish I could say that it was a good way, but I don't really think
2: that it is. Um, Let's let him come back on that. Do you want to? Another interesting argument he brought up was in Genesis 2-4, he mentions the chiasm. And I really wanted to get your thoughts on it because you he gives his argument. And then you kind of, I don't want to say change the subject. You brought up what my I, my opinion is even better evidence that it's a sequential count between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So, so my thoughts. My question for you is: Ed, Do you think it is a chiasm in Genesis two four, and what do you think the meaning is if the writer isn't trying to say that it, Genesis two is a recapitulation?
3: I'm not entirely sure. I'd have to look more into that.
2: Like because, I don't, I'm not, mm-hmm.
3: I'm not under sure. I'm not being. I wasn't really sure what the argument being made was
2: that's a great question so i i he quotes he, he get this from john collins okay and mm-hmm. i looked into it all right well i actually I, I read john collins work before so i already knew what he was referring to john collins says this he says this chiasmus asks us not to break it it also serves as chiasmoi, commonly do to invite the reader to see its part in some kind of unity with the context indicating just what kind of unity the author has in mind most simply i take the word order the heavens and the earth and the term created to point us back to genesis 1 1 2 3 as a whole at the same time they change the change in the divine name from god to the lord god points us to the section that follows on this change uh, see below and then he says i conclude this particular chiasmus urges us to read genesis 1 2 together um I'm-
3: Mm -hmm. the the reason why i didn't really comment on that much is because i didn't disagree with that of course we read genesis 1 and 2 together that's my whole point genesis 2 is the the sequel to genesis 1. that we have that sort of like beginning and end point there with genesis 1 1 then genesis 2 4 and then it just goes on to chapter 2. i didn't really see that as anything that would be a problem for my view
2: yeah yeah i would i would agree with that um well the thing with me is like how does he get from saying this is a chiasm to this means that it's sequential like
3: yeah and that's that's why i didn't understand his argument like i wouldn't know what he was trying to get at i think it's if it's a chiasm like i think it closes off the section of genesis 1 before we move to genesis 2.
2: right so i i looked into chiasms and like what their purpose is okay so Mm
1: -hmm.
2: um well just first of all one uh Dr. Collins or Dr. Ross—they never give a citation, a citation for uh, a chiasm being recapitulative. So it might, might be possible, but he, they never cited it. So you know we don't have much to go off there if, if it's even a thing. Uh, two, uh, chiasm, chiasms are often used to to prominence to their, to point to the central statement. And what is the central statement? The central statement is when they were created and the day that the Lord God made. So. In that case, if that's the central statement, this is essentially saying, OK, at Genesis 2.4, we're looking at what is the what is the important part here, which is what was created and what was made. And then we move on to Adam and Eve. So, it's, so some people would say that it seems like it's bringing the focus to Adam and Eve specifically. Um, yeah, but that
3: is here's the thing of chiasms do not necessarily imply, uh, you know, look at the chiasm of Genesis 6 through 9 that scholars like Joshua Berman bring up. Okay, when you get to the central chiasm, it's Genesis 1-8, you know, and the Lord God remembered Noah. And then you go through Genesis 8, it's still chronologically continuing to the end of the flood. It doesn't go backwards in time. It doesn't take us back to like a previous time in the flood. So if you have a, a chiastic structure here, which i am got no problem with, it doesn't mean the chronology changes. It doesn't mean the chronology goes back in time uh, with gen- after Genesis 2-4 and we're repeating day 6. That doesn't follow at all uh, we see chiastic structures throughout the Bible. And it typically shows that the the sequence of time continues on like with the flood account. Yeah. So that's why, that's why I didn't understand Ross's argument when he was making that. I'm like, that does not support your point at all. Like, because I would be perfectly fine with saying there's a chiastic structure here. So what?
2: And the other thing I'd say is, I mean, I don't know your thoughts on this, but (laughs) there are a lot of proposed chiasms in Genesis. And Mm -mm. for a lot of people, um i'm obviously the documentary hypothesis people are gonna hate it but the the other like some of them seem to be forced a little bit and i don't i mean if there is a lot then it would make sense that there there might be another one here but at the same time like you know we have to have i think you can
3: hmm? you need to make one based on narrative structure and that's what joshua Berman does in his book
2: i see i could i see that makes sense yeah um, I did want to point out that he never actually responds to your Toledoth uh, argument of mentioning 13 times. So I mean, that seems like pretty strong evidence. So I don't, maybe what Cameron did kind of change the subject a little bit there. So maybe that's why he didn't. Yeah, um, that's fair. I mean,
3: again, we couldn't cover everything. But I mean, mm-hmm. if you got a Tolodoth, it's sort of like a chapter marker, or it's always introducing what comes after that person. So if you have a Toledoth with the heavens and earth, it should be introducing what comes after the heavens and the earth. What comes after the heavens and the earth? Well, Eden, the creation of Eden, the specific land area where the temple is going to be. Uh, and I think that that sort of shows us Genesis 2 is picking up after the Sabbath rest on day eight. Same thing with the ordination of a priest. Adam is placed there in the garden to be the new priest. I think it just sort of follows as a sequel. I think there's a lot of things that point to that Toledoth being one of them for sure.
2: Yeah. And I mean, if, if that's the strongest evidence, if you don't respond to it, like, I don't know how you can say that your view is more probable. Um, yeah, I, I, I have
3: a hard, here's my thing is that with young earth, young earth creationism, they're really starting to lose ground in biblical interpretation now, uh, especially with Genesis 1-1 now. Now that uh, Holmstead's work has come out and Jack Sasson as well as some others, they're starting to lose ground in biblical interpretations. Young Earth creationism is a degenerate research program to borrow language from philosophy of science. Where are they like, where where does Young Earth creationism creationism have the edge? It's not in geology, it's not in paleontology, it's not in astrophysics, it's not in biology or genetics, uh, it's not in any form of science. Uh, And then just go to ancient history. There aren't any Egyptologists that accept the Young Earth creationist timeline. I mean, real Egyptologists one with doctorates. Uh, same with Assyriologists, and now they're losing grounds in biblical interpretation. It just seems like there's no reason to hold to this young Earth view anymore. The only reason we hold to it is because we're holding to the tradition of our elders. You know, this is how our our grandparents interpreted it, how they understood it, but that doesn't mean we have to. And it just seems like all the evidence in every area now is just pointing away from young Earth creationism. So whether it's science, whether it's historical timelines like Egypt or uh ancient sumeria and even biblical interpretation now in my view is now pointing away from young earth creationism especially with all the great scholarship we've seen coming out with genesis 1 1.
2: yeah well every single day it seems like we're coming up with new interesting views that can help us understand the text better um right god tells
0: them to subdue and have dominion and he tells them um i want you to eat plants okay AND HE TELLS THE ANIMALS, I WANT YOU TO EAT PLANTS AS WELL. THAT SEEMS RATHER PECULIAR. AS WE GO INTO GENESIS CHAPTER, uh, OR IF WE TAKE A LOOK AT GENESIS 1 AS A WHOLE, WE MIGHT ASK THE QUESTION, uh, HOW DOES GOD SUBDUE THE WORLD, RIGHT, IN HIS CREATION OF IT? IS THERE ANY VIOLENCE? Right? DOES GOD ENGAGE IN ANY VIOLENCE uh, WITH THE WORLD? IS THERE ANY SORT OF uh, you know, MECHANISM, KIND OF LIKE IN OTHER ANCIENT PAGAN ACCOUNTS of, OF THE CREATION OF THE WORLD? THERE'S OFTEN A LOT OF VIOLENCE. God well, doesn't seem to have any sort of struggle with the, with the world. Well, when God commands Joshua to take the promised land, there's, he commands violence. Yeah, but I'm talking about in creation, week, right? We, in order to understand what a word means, mm-hmm. where it is, we have to investigate its context first before we go somewhere else, and we can go elsewhere to help us. Like I said, everywhere else we see Kabash. Uh, that's a hard word. Mm-hmm. In Genesis and he's chapter he's giving, one. He's giving humanity, so same thing with Joshua. Subdue the promised land. Humanity subdue the earth. Right, well, there's there's Canaanites in the Promised Land, and they're they're not nice. So, but in Genesis chapter one, what's there that's not nice? Well, the interaction that we're supposed to have with animals is uh, non-predatory in Genesis one because we're commanded to eat plants, and they are as well. Uh, god's very specific about that. Again, the context of Genesis 1, God's creation of the world involves no violence, no forceful subjugation, no warfare with the world or with other gods. It stands in total contrast to everything else in the ancient world. And then in Genesis chapter 2, how do we see mankind engaged in dominion and subduing? Right? So subduing refers to the earth. How does Adam subdue the world that he's in? He tends a garden. Okay, that's violent stuff right there. Right. Okay, yeah. but I think it's, you're kind of just not. reading no, 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 this perfection no, reading back into the text. but then we have to see how is dominion, how is dominion approached? And dominion is approached by Adam naming animals. That is the way that he is shown to have dominion over them. If you take a look at Genesis 1, it's fascinating because Genesis 1, God names things, right? He names the, the light, he names the dark. On day 2, mm-hmm. he names the sea, and on day 3, he names the land and the seas. On days 4, 5, and 6, God names nothing. Not a thing. Instead, that, and I like you, uh, I, I liked how you connected to Heiser and his view of imaging God. I think that's a, a brilliant uh, approach that he has. How does Adam image God? He names things. Mm-hmm. He names the animals, he names woman, and he names woman a second time, he names her his, his wife Eve. So how do we see um, dominion and how do we see subdue? Uh, he names animals, he tends a garden. There's no violence here. Genesis chapter one is actually presenting us with a way to understand that subduing the world could be done without violence. The Israelites have this word of subdue, they've got Kabash, they know what it means. And God turns that word on its head and shows that there was a better way to
2: do it. So you mentioned, well, he, he mentioned that the Canaanites in the promised land, you guys are talking about the the, the word kibosh in Genesis one twenty-eight, I believe. And, mm-hmm. you know, subdue the land, and he says the canaanites are in the promised land but there's nothing to subdue in genesis 1. Um, do you agree with this
3: <laughs> no that doesn't there wouldn't you wouldn't use the language of subdue and have dominion over uh, you wouldn't use the language of subdue if there was not something already to subdue and then he goes on to sort of exaggerate or go into excuse me elaborate on how adam was subduing creation he was doing it in very peaceful ways even if he's right about that it still implies that creation was not perfect. It still needed subdued, even if you were going to do it in peaceful and loving kind of ways. Fine. I can get random that, but you're still with that very word, you're still admitting creation was not perfect. It still needed humanity to act upon it and make it better. There was chaos there that was not uh put in order yet. And it doesn't make sense when you get to Genesis three that God is going to curse all the universe because of the sin of humanity. I, I don't think that really fits with the idea that, you know, like. We see later in scripture that the son shall not suffer the sins of the father. Are we really going to make animals pay for our sin? No, I don't think so at all. I think God uh, exiled humanity from Eden. It was their sin. They're now to go back into the chaotic wilderness. It was not It's not all of creation's fault. And so I think the language of what we see and the theology we get from this uh, points to the idea that creation was already not in a perfect state when Genesis 1.28 is uttered
2: but what about the serpent so adam pastel takes this view uh or sorry adam <laughs> seth pastel takes this view uh, i actually interviewed carmen joy imes and she thought this might be interesting that'll be coming out later that when it talk about subdue it's kind of foreshadowing foreshadowing is that the word future future shadowing whatever the the serpent coming in the future that adam or manning says to do do you see that as probable at all
3: I don't see the serpent as a literal snake. I think it is used. I agree with scholars like Ben Stanhope that it is a. Uh, it's describing a rebellious seraph as if he is a serpent. Uh, this is why he's talking. This is why the word Nahash, as Heiser argued, is a triple anton, meaning serpent, deceiver, and shining one all at the same time. Uh, we see. I think when we see the parallel accounts later, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, as well it's referring to the same sort of thing. I think what's happening in Genesis 3 is the rebellion of a seraph. And in the ancient Near East, seraph were depicted as serpentine. So I don't think this is a literal snake. I think the curses apply to Satan or the rebellious seraph. They don't apply to literal
2: snakes. So, but that seems the question then, do you think the subdued could be foreshadowing the, you know, the, the angel-like being, like the, you know what you just described with Hydra view there. Do you think that it could be referring to that future act there at all? No,
3: because it says subdue the earth. It's referring to the earth itself needs subdued, and it already needs subdued in Genesis one twenty-eight. It's not saying get ready to subdue the earth or soon you will have to subdue it. It says go out and do it now.
2: Yeah, I see. Um, but there is that word the earth is you know land erits, though. So you have a you know, some people might see, okay, it's earth is in like subdue the ground, which we do see that language and Genesis one and two, as far as like, you know, cultivating the ground and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you know, we see the same language of Eretz in you know, the, in I think it's Jeremiah and, you know, the Canaanite con- conquest of subdue is the land is the people in the land. Mm-hmm. Um so do you, do you have a preference on what you think that land is there, whether it's people, animals, just straight land, dirt? What do you think about that? I
3: think it, it refers to the earth itself. It's just saying go out and subdue the world around you kind of thing. Uh, I, I tend to favor that, but I'm open to that being a difference because I know that word is used, has multiple meanings. I'm, I'm more focused on the actual verbs itself. I think that's more important in what God is trying to get across. I want to respond, but I also I want to say really quickly. Even interestingly enough, Robert Alter notes that the word for helper in Genesis two refers to someone being like a military sustainer. Eve is much more of a role than a helper.
0: Uh, but I think except except Bible when God set, talks about being
2: our help. So uh, when you talked about helper, Azer, the word military st- sustainer for Eve, um, he says, and I don't know if you heard it because people were talking. He uh, he says, except when God talks about being our help. Uh, so essentially God is the helper. Um, so maybe that's what it's referring to that Eve is like the helper, like God is. It's not anything to do with the military. Do you have a response to that?
3: I'm getting this from Robert Alter in his commentary and translation where it says the word specifically used for helper in Hebrew elsewhere refers to the, the idea of military sustaining. That's how that specific word is used. And so Robert Arter was pointing out that Eve is far more than just some sort of you know helper with the gardener this is she's actively involved in the strategic planning of the subduing of the earth strategy it's more she has much more prominent role than that
2: gotcha uh, so back on the the subdue Kavash, so he doesn't actually it doesn't seem like he responds to it but he also says that it's almost like the opposite like Kavash <laughs> is that Adam is that God is showing how to actually kavash. Um, I was even if yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say that I was very confused by that because language is determined by how it's used. And if every single other time it's used, which is a lot of times in the old Testament, it's always bad language, which he agreed with, then it seems very odd for him to come up with his own meaning here in this one specific passage. And it's actually the reverse of it.
3: Well, even if he's right that that doesn't change anything, because again, Adam is still subduing the creation, even if he's doing it in peaceful and gentle ways. Fine. But that still implies creation in itself needs subdued somehow, even if you're going to do it in very gentle ways. You're not doing it like in terms of like a war conquest. Fine. But that still implies creation was not perfect at this point. That it needed subdued, regardless
0: of how you do it. Then, in Genesis chapter 3, the world changes because, as I said in my presentation, the ground is cursed and the ground is now at war with us. Thorns and thistles, which, if you live in the ancient world and you can't go to, go, go to Lowe's and get yourself a, a set of, of leather gloves, thorns and thistles are a serious impediment to doing work. It's hard. The ground is now at war with us, so we must subdue. Now we must work hard. Now we must enact our will. The animals no longer are going to work the way that they ought to because they have been cursed. The serpent was cursed above all other animals, implying that other animals are affected by the curse. Do you so think the, the serpent realm was of an work, actual animal? The realm, the realm of work, the realm of dominion, all are affected and so now there's struggle that has to happen with subdue and dominion, but in the beginning it was not so.
2: Do you think the serpent was an actual animal in your view? He makes an argument that the curse affected the ground and that's why they have to have harsher labor. Uh, I noticed you didn't say you disagree. Um, no, I, I think obviously you do, but I want to ask you, um, like, but then you so, asked, like, who, who the serpent was? Um, like, did yeah, you I didn't feel have like time that was Okay. I didn't have All time right. to respond to everything,
3: unfortunately. We were running out of time. Uh, but my, my view is, Walton's view is that when God curses the ground, it's not him changing it. This is not what it means in the Bible. It means him just removing his protection or sort of, moving out from it. Like, I'm no longer going to give you this special ground that I've sort of set up like, you know, when he leaves in Ezekiel, he leaves the promised land, okay, it's cursed at that point, it's no longer sacred space. So blessing is God giving his protection is something cursing is him removing his protection from something.
2: Gotcha. Uh, and then you, so you, you talked about the serpent, you asked about that. Um, did you have were you just curious? Or what was your main purpose in mentioning that?
3: my main purpose in the sermon was getting this idea that that animals were not sort of i you know ran out of time but animals were not sort of changed at this this is a specific divine creature that's being cursed it's not just a a literal snake gotcha yeah
2: that explains a lot there okay the the topic was is evolution compatible with the bible but the debate has gone to be more about whether or not michael's particular
0: view is Compatible with the Bible, so even if you, even if you were successful, Marcus, it seems like you have a really big challenge.
2: So for those curious, uh, you, you kind of talked about this briefly, but Joshua Swamidas he asks uh, why why do not you talk about all the different views? Because it seems like all the different views, if you add them up all together, even if some of them are not as probable, that it could see, seem pretty obvious that evolution doesn't contradict with the Bible. Um, so why don't why didn't you talk about all the different views there?
3: Well, because they only in 20
2: minutes. Am I going to be able to make a case for all of these views in 20
3: minutes? No. Uh, the best I could do is just mention them briefly. And then the audience would have been left wondering, OK, but how does that handle this issue? How does the day age theory handle the issue of death or Adam or these other issues that are all surrounded the issues when you think of theistic evolution? So the best thing I thought I could do is just present the view that I tend to hold to and show how you can have all the core doctrines of Christianity and still hold to evolution. So, I mean, yeah, I had an hour, sure, but I didn't.
2: Gotcha. And if if anyone's interested in more views, I have all all kinds of different views on my channel um, that that are very interesting scholarly reviews. Um, And let's
3: also remember he did not demonstrate that evolution was incompatible with Genesis. He spent a lot of his time just trying to attack my view without showing things in evolution or things in Genesis that sort of contradict each other or could not go together. We never got a good demonstration that they were not, that they could not jive well. So, you know, the focus sort of came down, is my view compatible with Genesis, unfortunately. But at the end of the day, I don't think there was anything really shown to show that it is not, and he even agreed that I take a high view of scripture before the debate. So if he agrees with me, I have a hard time seeing how he can also say my view is not compatible with the Bible.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think his approach was to say, hey, if I discredit Michael's view, then that means that there's no good views out there or no views that Michael has proposed, and therefore I win the debate. I think that's his mm-hmm. approach there, which you're right that, you know, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, what you said. <laughs> from from the 1800s to today, there has been this revolving
0: carousel of disparate and difficult arguments to try to make the Bible say, or be compatible with something that it's not. And so we've gone through gap theory, we've gone through day age, tried out uh, framework hypothesis, we've got other trendy approaches that are going on right now that are not going to survive the day. And the one constant that's been there the whole time has been young earth creation. And it's, you know, we are stubbornly still here. And that might embarrass a bunch of people, but it's because this is the natural way to read the text. And the deeper you go into the text, the more it makes sense
1: sorry no follow-ups ah apologize
2: i can't follow up uh no no dang it okay yeah 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 okay so this is going to be your favorite question of the night um i know you were you were basically having like a aneurysm on the stage there for a second for this one so he says gap theory day age framework hypothesis other trendy approaches that aren't going to survive the day and then he says and the one constant that's been there the whole time has been a younger creationism.
3: Okay, Doctor Ross is just absolutely wrong about this, and other people actually went up and talked to him about this after the debate. That um, so, this is just not true. Uh, we know in the the days of the early church, a lot of early church fathers took a metaphorical reading or an allegorical reading of Genesis, like Clement of Alexandria. They did not. They did not think the days were literal. Uh, Athanasius, uh, for example, is another one. Um, what is Augustine as well, did not they thought the days were metaphorical. They did not think there were, God literally took seven days to create everything. Uh, by the time you get to like the uh, 1700s, young earth creationism is fading out at the rise of geology. And Michael Roberts will know, who's an historian, the, the majority view at this point seems to be the chaos restitution view, which held to some sort of old earth view. By the time you get to the 1800s, Michael Roberts and um, Ronald Numbers will note, is that... Young Earth creationism had mostly died out. The spiritual geologists were like the last stronghold, and they died out by about the 1850s. The only group at this point holding on to Young Earth creationism was the Seventh-day Adventists, but mainstream Christians were not. When the anti-evolutionist movement gets going in the 1920s, it's all Old Earth creationists, minus the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay, You don't get Young Earth creationism rising in the church until you get the Genesis flood from Whitcomb, John Wickham Jr. and Henry Morris. Prior to that, it was a very, very, very minority view. As far as we can tell in the 1800s, we don't see any people writing about it after the spiritual geologists. And then you see this rise once again in the late 20th century. So for him to say that young earth creationism had been this constant, it's just false. I don't know if he didn't know this or he doesn't, like if he's not aware of the history, but that's just not true. Young earth creationism was not the only, like the the young earth creationist view that the earth. Is only six thousand years old, and God created everything in six days. That view was not the only view in the early church, and that view had mostly died out, if not entirely, by about the 1850s. And then it had a revival because of Seventh-day Adventism started to seep back into mainstream Christianity. So for him to make these claims, they're just they're just factually they're just historically wrong. They're factually incorrect, and if you study the historians, they'll point this out. Unfortunately, I couldn't respond to the debate, but that's just the truth.
2: Camera says these are the rules.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, those are the rules, but I mean, he just put out a bunch of here's my thing when you do that kind of stuff. You just set your audience up for failure. I try to make sure I don't give inaccurate information. I'm not perfect at it, but I try not to. Because I don't want to set my audience up for failure. All he did is he set up younger creations to go out and say that. And then they'll get in conversations with my followers that will just blow them apart.
2: Yeah. Okay, so a few thoughts here. All right, so I, Michael Heiser is obviously a big proponent of specifically the you know three falls, not just one, you um, know, in, in the Book of Enoch and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Second, second type of literature. Um, so, I mean, that's like one of the earliest anything having to do with Genesis debates here, um, and it goes against their typical like original sin view. Um, you have the framework hypothesis, which uh, is very alive and well today i've interviewed multiple people on the topic uh kenneth turner uh uh, bruce bulky john Walton, meredith klein all super people putting out information now of course they don't think that it's like long ages because this, this isn't a scientific text but like very popular today and um apparently people can make the argument that augustine was actually the first person so this is way long ago if you don't want to say that it's at least 1924 and um, which is still longer than modern young earth creationism. So, I mean, if you want to say that, then like, I mean, I don't see where the comparison there is at all, actually. Um, any, any more thoughts there? No, I mean, yeah, you see a plethora of views on the early church.
3: Now, you could make the argument that the majority of them were young earth creationists, fine, uh, but again. It, once geology gets going, it's it's actually quite interesting how fast the church just moves on the old Earth. Like they don't go, oh no, we got to cling to this because the Bible demands it. No, once uh, historical geology comes out and mainstream science starts to get developed, they just chaos restitution, cap theory, day age theory. Like no, no issue. Like it wasn't a big problem for them. Uh, young Earth creationism, you know, was just sort of pushed to the side because it was inconsistent with the data.
2: Yeah. Uh, so Jonathan Sarfardi in his book uh, in one of his books, he's a young earth creationist. And he says, he, he makes a chart and it has at 33% of people that don't believe. In, and even though some of those days, some of those people are debatable, but 33% in the early church were not young earth creation or 6,000 year old type people. Yeah. They didn't believe in the, the, each day was, you know, God creating was literally doing that on each
3: day. They thought the days were metaphorical.
0: Yes. Yeah, so the word "coal" means all every, and it can be, uh, I, had, I ate everything on the table even if I didn't, right, that sort of thing. Um, so the question is, again, uh, it comes down to context. How is the word being used in a particular area so that we can understand what that area is talking about? And as I showed with that uh, visual, 60 instances of coal being used throughout Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, that heavy usage is telling us repetition. As I told the group earlier today, uh, repetition is the way to build emphasis in the ancient world because you don't have bold, you don't have PowerPoints, you don't have emojis, praise God, uh, we don't have the emoji Bible, right? And so repetition is the way that you build it. The other instances that you brought up, these, these things like, you know, they went every, the, the whole, there was a famine in the whole earth and ev- the whole earth came to Egypt, right? Those are one-off statements. They're in the text and they throw off this statement of universality that is intended to be hyperbole and you recognize it because it's obviously not true that the whole earth went uh, down to Egypt because Jacob stayed there and sent his kids right so your context is telling you that this is hyperbolic the context of the flood is anything but it is directly tied to the creation of all things and the destruction of all things and the recreation of all things and uses all all the time right, in order to build up that emphasis. So the, glo- the perspective of the writer is that this
2: is everything. Whatever the known world is, it is covered. His, his, his flood argument as far as like repetition is how you build emphasis. Uh, you know, all this catastrophic language, it, he says it so many times, like that builds emphasis that it must have been, uh, you know, a global flood. Uh, do you have any thoughts on like, do you think that's true?
3: no you you don't there's no rule in the bible that says if you say it so many times it has to mean the whole globe they didn't have a concept of the globe at this point they're just using the same sort of hyperbolic language i mean look at how the rivers are described in genesis 2. it says you know one, one of the river flows out around the whole land you know co to rest does that mean the whole earth no it doesn't refer to that at all genesis um three it says eve is the mother of all living was eve the mother of adam and the animals no and genesis 9 too all the fear of dread and of all the animals and all the birds shall be upon them. Again, not every animal is afraid of humans. And for you to sort of claim that the language is sort of suggesting that, and it's real, it's just, it's, it's, it seems, it just, comes as weird. Like not every animal is afraid of us. It's just using
2: this sort of hyperbolic language. Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't very kind to your cat. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> he, he, he didn't, he didn't respect your opinion that you're the He thinks the cat actually fears you.
3: Well, I mean, even <laughs> if that's true, I mean, hippos, I, I, if you come across a wild hippo, it doesn't fear you, it wants to kill you. I mean, <laughs> they they kill everything. What about what about sharks that see a human in the water? Are they afraid of them? No, The fear is not on. Them. I mean, they don't understand why they should be afraid. A lot of these animals don't have the ca- mental capacity to understand why they should be afraid of us.
2: Yeah, but isn't the the you know shark or hippo attacking us, isn't that like some type of defense mechanism?
3: Yeah, they're defending territory, they're, they're hungry, like the shark would be in that instance. Uh, but they don't, ha- I would say a lot of animals don't have the mental capacity to understand why they should be afraid of humans. And some just like humans, like our pets, like they're not afraid of us.
2: Yeah, it seems like, I mean, if you're looking in the idea of an ancient Israelite, he, they, they fear us, like not some like, they. Did, well, maybe they actually did think that, you know, animals had all these types of different thoughts in their head or whatever, but um, yeah. I think that seems to make more sense of the text there.
0: And I would say, uh, from my perspective on this, um, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians are very, very clear that only those who uh, come from Adam and physically come from Adam are capable of being saved. So whoever was living at the, uh, in Mike's view, prior to Adam, but I would say anybody who was living even at the same time and was not geneal, uh, genetically or genealogically connected to him, um, they're outside of the possibility of salvation through Christ, which I think puts us in a horrible,
2: horrible theological position. I guess he's making the argument from Romans 5 that everyone before Adam doesn't have the ability to be saved. Like, Do you see that in the text at all?
3: No, I, I take the view that Genesis 1, all humanity, wherever they are, is given the image of God, and Adam is their priest. When he failed, all humanity fell with him. So, no, I don't see that as a problem, because I don't think we all have to be connected to, like, related to, every human has to be related to adam for this to work although i think everyone today is descended from adam i don't think every human had to be descended from adam just like today we don't own have to be directly related to christ as in being like descended from him to be saved by christ we can be saved in christ that we are grafted into him he's our representative likewise adam was the representative for all
0: humans at the time um but the the, the word very good is intending us to understand that creation functions properly it, it's working well God made it, it's operating, um, and it's healthy uh, in a sense. And I would say that um, the, the overall image that we're getting from Genesis chapter one and chapter two is that there is a harmony of nature uh, that is different from the disharmony that we see
2: today. Uh, I did find it interesting that one point where he described what very good means, it was like he, he basically described his view and it was the same thing as yours, and then he just kept going. I thought that was, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, that, that's my view right there. Cool. <laughs>
0: and I, I would say in response that uh, the mathematical modeling that uh, Josh uses in genealogical Adam and Eve uh, doesn't work. And that the most recent modeling for, uh, for genealogical models would only allow a universal ancestor to all of humanity somewhere between 50 and 100,000 years ago, not a few thousand years ago. Uh, you can read that in the paper by Kelleher et al, 2016. Um, it's cited in Josh's book, um, but uh, their, their model says a recent genealogical Adam and Eve is not possible.
2: Joshua Swamidas, when he kind of like critiqued uh, Joshua Swamidass' view there with Keter et al., I haven't looked into it, I'm going to... Okay, so yeah. yeah,
3: this is... I was actually a little dumbfounded that Dr. Ross did this. He should know better. Swamidas responded to him on this, and he's claiming that this uh, Keller et al. study that uh, Swamidas cited shows that you know genealogical descent would take 100,000 years. Okay, well Swami Das responded and here's what he says. Uh, I got it up here right here he says. Uh, where should I start? I explained this study's finding at length, citing it five times. This is Swami Das talking in response to Ross directly on uh, henry henrycenter.edu. He says, "This study considers a counterfactual world in which our ancestors travel only a few kilometers over the course of their entire lifetimes." In the imaginary world, I agree that universal ancestors take more than 100,000 years to rise. But in the real world, we easily traverse a few kilometers in merely a 30-minute stroll. Moreover, the genetic evidence demonstrates unequivocally that our real history includes very long-range migration across oceans and between continents. So... Dr. Ross is taking the study out of context. It's setting up an imaginary world where genealogical descent takes hundred thousand years because humans only can travel a few kilometers. But we know, we know darn well humans have traveled hundreds of miles, hundreds of kilometers. They've gone from continents, traveling, you know, chasing herds or following uh, different herds as they've migrated. So the, 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 like, when did, when did he do this? Like Swaminos responded to this like in 2020. So, like two years ago, in this article was written directly in response to Dr. Ross's criticism. So he should know this. So, really, Dr. Ross is misrepresenting the study that Dr. Swamidas used. And that's that was a shame. I couldn't believe that happened. I thought Dr. Ross was aware of Swamidas's criticism and how he pointed out that he is really Dr. Ross is the one who misrepresented the study, not Dr. Swamidas.
2: Uh, no, that's very interesting. You didn't see Swamidas's face, like obviously we have the one camera view of All three of you guys, but Swamidas is obviously not in the camera. Did you look at his face when he said that? I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't know where he was sitting at that point. Uh. I was, I was, I talked to him after and we were both surprised
3: he said it as we should be because this Dr. Swamidas did not misuse the study. Dr. Ross is the one taking it out of context. Fascinating.
0: Um, Okay, so
3: I know that for Dr. Ross, I know you've heard this objection before, but I gotta ask um, plants and animals seem to have been created before humans in chapter one. Uh, they were made on days three, five, and six before Adam. But in chapter two, humans were created first, and then God formed the plants for Adam to cultivate and the animals for Adam to accompany. Mm-hmm. So if Genesis one and two are different versions of the same event, then how do you reconcile this, at least apparent contradiction?
0: That's a very good and perceptive question. Thanks for asking it. Uh, the plants that are talked about on day three of Genesis chapter one are you know, the, the fruit trees and the plants that have fruit Uh, or have seed uh, inside them. There's a big emphasis on seed and fruit in Genesis chapter 1, day 3. As we get to the opening passages of the Genesis 2 account, what we find are other words, other different Hebrew words uh, that we translate as shrub, bush of the field, things like that. These are herbaceous plants uh, that are doing different things that require human cultivation in order to thrive. And so the focus is different here these are not the same sorts of things that are talked about on day three but rather before there were any cultivated plants the reason why there aren't any cultivated plants yet is there aren't people doing the cultivation so it's not that there's no plants that Genesis 2 is introducing us to some whole new world and it's it's completely different rather it's saying yeah that stuff was already there but now there's other things and those aren't here yet because we don't have any rain and we don't have any rain because there's no one to till the ground. And by the end of uh, chapter 2, we've got somebody in the garden ready to till the ground. There can be rain, there can be plants, there can be all that stuff. Hmm. And as far as the animals go, sorry, just to finish that, um, one can translate the, the Hebrew in that in, in a slightly different way to say, the word had formed, and a lot of times that's, that's the way that other people have looked at that. It's simply the word formed, so you have to kind of import the idea of had formed, but it's a simple past and it could be understood that way.
2: This I love this one. He mentions the had formed language in Genesis 2.8. Did you have any thoughts on that? I know you didn't comment on the video. Oh, so it's, it's a a sequential view. Um, You know, the, the question is, is it um, there he had put the man he had formed, or is it there he put the man he formed? And what happens is like, I've heard so many scholars like say this, the silliest view is what, what the NIV does is they, translate it had formed so they can, they can make it so Genesis one fits with the text, but without it there, it doesn't fit with the text. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any thoughts? On, have you, I mean, is this new to you or what do you, do you have any thoughts?
3: Um, I, this is just sort of someone trying to say that maybe Genesis two contradicts uh, Genesis one. And I, I think we're reading way too much into that. I mean, I, I, I think, I didn't really say much on it cause I thought that's what Dr. Ross was directly addressing.
2: Oh, well, I mean, I mean, you can still, I mean, you would just say that it's referring to something different. Like when it, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll read. Um, I didn't include the name here, but I'll read the, the quote here for you. So the international version employs the English past perfect or pluperfect verb tense to render Hebrew verbs in the converted imperfect past tense. Thus, in Genesis 2, 8, the NIV says that God had planted the garden, implication on day three before the creation of man. And in Genesis 2.19, it reads, the Lord God had formed out of the dust of the ground all the beasts of the field, which is an implication that it's referring to day six, when it's mm-hmm. creation of humans. Both these translations violate the clear sense of the immediate context in Genesis or chapter two. Genesis 2.5 states that before Yahweh God had created the first man, no plant of the, the field was yet in the earth. And it says no herb of the field had yet spread out, sprouted because the lord god had not put rain upon the earth this statement makes the translation had planted in genesis 2 8 dubious in the extreme even more obviously translating had formed in 2:19 is nonsensical when one reads verses 18 and 19 together when it says then the lord god said it is not good that the man should be alone i will make a helper for him so out of the ground the lord god formed, not had formed, a helper as his partner. So like scholarship everywhere I read, everyone that doesn't think that Genesis 2 is a recapitulation, everyone else thinks that this is like a crazy translation.
3: Yeah, I think it is supposed to be formed. I I guess I'm just sort of confused on what this has to do with the whole debate. I didn't think it was really addressing the whole main issue that we were getting
2: at. So what, so basically the question is the translation, like how do you translate that word and what people do, people that take the view that Genesis one and Genesis two, or Genesis two is describing day six is that they take the one had form translation and they make it that -hmm. translation into the text. They change the translation so that it fits with their view, but that's, that's not how we, I mean, it's, it's a possible translation, but it's not what it should be. And, Uh, what I'm saying is that and what many of these other scholars are saying is that if we're going to translate it for what it is and not try to bring the text to our preconceived notions that we have to translate it as it is and if it is that way then that gives us good reason to think that Genesis 2 is uh, a separate account it's sequential does that make sense
3: yeah I I get that as well and I I don't think that we should be translating it as had formed Uh, I didn't really see it as I didn't respond cause I didn't really see it as an issue for what I was presenting in the debate. And I was happy just to move on. I didn't, to me it, at the time it wasn't really that important. I was more focusing on what the actual main points were we were trying to get across. And at that point we were basically almost done at that point.
2: All right, well, yeah, I mean, that's true, that's true. But the, the thing is though that if he wants to make the argument and it contradicts with the text, then that seems like mm-hmm. it'd be a pro
3: for your view yeah, I guess I'd have to think about that. I wasn't, I had not really thought about that prior to there, but it would be, it could definitely help support the point I was trying to make, Yeah. You
0: know? So there's a, there's a blend between those two, create and form and make, and that's all very physical. And what you said about uh, naming is important because again, God names nothing on the next three days of creation on, on days four, five, and six. So what? They don't come into existence. They're not part of the actual functioning of the world until when? right? They're left. So this functional view is, is really interesting and it's got some, some, you know, there's a couple of things about it that I like, but in the end, this, this is kind of like cotton candy. It, it tastes really good and then it just dissipates.
2: You know, Asa is a very physical thing.
3: I mean, Asa is used for a point to act as well throughout the Bible.
2: Mm-hmm. And then he also says, naming implies existence. God doesn't name anything in four, five, six, and so they don't come into existence until when? Question mark.
3: Well, I mean, if you go back to my opening slides, I had a quote from Walton on this specific topic. I said, Days one, he says, Days one through three, which concern the three core functions of the cosmos, would consequently be viewed as not just activating, but establishing the control attributes of the cosmos, while Days four through six could be seen as determining the destinies of the functionaries within the cosmos. So, yeah, Days one through three concern the functions, and Days four through six concern the destinies of the functions. Well, Days.
2: Uh, yeah, my question, uh, Michael, is about uh, you use the Greek septuagint to support your reading of a of a when then construction for Genesis one one. Uh, wasn't it was unclear to me how that supported, considering um, the septuagint uh, rendering is an independent c- clause rather than a dependent clause like uh, you want to render it. So my question is, how does how does the Greek septuagint actually support rather than oppose your? So
3: talking your with Ben Stanhope, he actually helped me with a blog on this. And, uh, he says it should be ente arche if it was a, if it was that. Uh, to sort of play in the beginning, really it's like in beginnings or initially, Heiser says this as well in some of his talks. Uh, But I can even just say that you're entirely right and throw it out, because my main argument was relying on Robert Holmsted, who discovered uh, certain roles of Hebrew grammar that we have not previously known until this point. So, and this is why he can make such uh, strong claims when he says in the beginning just should not be there. End of story. And most scholars now, it seems, are going in that direction, from what I've seen. Robert Alter, Dan McClellan, uh, all the scholars I listed up there, it just seems like this is now where the scholarship In fact, the NRSV, the new updated version, has translated it that way, when God began to create. So does the um, CEB, uh, Robert Alter's translation, JPS as well. So it seems like we're moving in that direction now.
0: So uh, John Day, in his book that just came out this year, he's a uh, British Old Testament scholar, uh, really takes that, that position to task. Um, when it comes to the Septuagint, uh, it's uh, in the beginning. And what you have to understand about Hebrew and Greek is that these languages have a definite article, the, but they don't have an indefinite article, a, and as a result, their use of the definite article runs on different types of rules than ours do. Frequently the, indefinite, uh, sorry, the definite article is implied by the text. In Genesis 1.1 1, 1, it's implied and we can see that it's implied, as Day makes the case that it's frequently implied in temporal clauses and we can see this in the days. The days of creation uh, in Genesis 1 are not all said as the first day or the second day. Some of them are and some of them are not. It's a hodgepodge. Why? Sometimes it's because it just makes better sense out of the syllables that are being said and it's easier to say it a certain way. And in every single case, it is the day that is implied whether it's got the definite article or not.
1: Oh, wow. You were done.
0: Uh, Good job. Oh, I thought somebody said time. I did. Oh, okay. (laughs) So let me just, on on the Septuagint, it's the same thing. The Septuagint has no uh, definite article there because it's just following the the Hebrew correctly. But if you started to try to uh, interpret the Septuagint as saying when God created, then you end up screwing up John 1.1, which follows uh, the Septuagint wording precisely to say, in the beginning was the Word. All of a sudden you have, when the Word was in the beginning, the Word was with God. Or when the Word began, that's even worse. When the Word began, it was with God. And now your Christology is all messed up. So we've gotta be really, really careful not to follow along with some of these things. And again, I would point you to John Day's recent book From Adam to Abraham. His first chapter is devastating. And this is a guy who's a documentary hypothesis. scholar. he's no evangelical. Uh, And he goes through uh, this language and and shows, yeah, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is the universal attestment of this uh, from the earliest manuscripts we have, even the the earliest uh, transliterations where the Hebrew was transliterated into Greek the definite article was vocalized in those. So as far back as we have evidence, we have evidence that the understanding of this was in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth.
3: With regards to John 1-1 though, I, I wanna point out that I'm actually surprised by this, but the scholarship is really moving in the direction of the dependent clause at this point. I mean, I said all, I look in my opening presentation. presentation, I mentioned about 17 scholars or so that have been arguing for this as of late and it does seem that the scholars that are writing on genesis 1 1 and how to properly interpret that are going in the direction that it is a dependent clause so it seems like the independent clause reading is really becoming not consensus anymore and that that's very interesting because if you don't have genesis 1 1 giving you an absolute beginning point you don't have a young earth because you leave open the possibility of these ages prior for an untold amount of chaos before Genesis one one begins, uh, so at this point it doesn't really seem like it supports a young Earth reading, and scholars like Robert Homestead are just so un unapologetic about this. They're just like, no end of story. This is the this is the way it's translated. When God began to create, you can't get around it. Translating it as in the beginning just doesn't make sense. It, he's not even he's not even holding any punches back. This is just what the data shows.
2: So you you said John one one. Did you mean Genesis one one? Yeah, I meant Genesis one, one my mistake. Okay. All right. Yeah, cool. No worries. Um, he didn't actually respond to any of your arguments on the Hebrew of, of the, you know, the construct, the no dependent cause or independent cause, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, <laughs> he didn't respond to it, but then he cites and says that it's it's a bad view. So I don't know, it was that was weird to me. Um yeah, it's,
3: it's a weird thing because you know, Robert Holmsted goes at this length in detail and he's been credited for discovering rules about Hebrew grammar we had missed for centuries. Uh, he cites numerous examples to support this. It's backed by a wealth of scholarship and the majority of scholars that are looking at this are now agreeing with Homestead on this and going in that direction. It does seem like Sheet is in bound form. It's a restrictive relative clause, if it's restrictive and relative, you don't get in the beginning. You cannot put the definite article in there. And so the only argument I've sort of seen bit has been a pushback is like, if that's the case, it makes the sentence very long because you have the dependent clause and you have the circumstantial clause in verse two, and then you don't get to the main clause until verse three. But the problem with that is by pointing that out, you're only shooting yourself in the foot because all creation accounts, well, most of them from the ancient years, the ones we have, are very long. Like the Enuma Elish has all these lines of, of text before you get to the main clause. Same with Genesis two, four, uh, same setup there and Genesis one, you've all of these additional long lines of text before you get to the main clause. And we can see in the ancient Greece, that'd be the general way to open a creation account with this very long form type of, uh, writing. So it doesn't really help them when they point this out.
2: Yeah, but it's not, it's not even that Yes, sure, it's long, but it's also, it's super awkward grammar, like super awkward. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's also what we see in the other creation accounts. So, Absolutely.
3: Yeah, so it, it, you can say it is awkward. Uh that's but I mean, that's what you would expect if you're going to open a creation account. It's that long awkward grammar. So it actually fits with it. So despite them pointing this out. Dr.
2: Dr. Marcus Ross at the end, you know here, he he mentions Don Day, John Day. And he I I don't know exactly what he was referring to.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure what he was referencing to either. I tried looking it up, but I couldn't find any results. Maybe I'm missing something. Uh, I would like to read what he says, but, but he seems to be going against the consensus at this point. Because again, the majority of scholars uh, seem to be going in this direction. I mean, like Ben Stanhope, Robert Alter, Martin Mark S. Smith, uh, Robert Homestead, John Hobbins, Jack Sasson, Christine Hayes. I mean, they even Richard Averback, for example. Uh, they all seem to be saying, yeah, this should be a dependent clause. So I mean, I like to see what the actual arguments are, but it, it doesn't really seem like the scholarship is moving in that direction. It seems like it's moving in the direction of the dependent clause. And we also should point out that Barashit or Rashid by itself, when it shows up in other places, it doesn't imply an absolute beginning point. For example, Amos 6.1, where it, it says that the, the, the no, notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Okay, well, it doesn't mean like literally the first man of all nations. It, it's not using it in that sense. You could see similar constructs in Micah one three, where it talks about the beginning of the sin of the daughters of Zion, but it's not referring to the, the first time that any sort of daughters of Zion have ever sinned. Numbers 24.20 talks about Amalek as the first among the nations. It's not saying he was literally the first uh, nation or the first ever. Uh, it, so, I mean, we got to be very careful with sort of saying that that what we see in Genesis 1-1 is necessarily an absolute beginning. Uh, with the grammar and the word itself, it just doesn't seem to be pointing in that direction.
2: So one of the best objections I've heard so far is how do you explain, okay, so first of all, uh, Homestead notes in the paper that in in Arche, uh, which is, you know, in the Septuagint, that's Greek, mm-hmm. that's, it's very vague. It doesn't tell you exactly what, and it also doesn't have the awkward grammar of Genesis 1-1 in the Hebrew, which tells us that you know, as far as an issue with the contract, like we don't have to worry about that. Two, um, you have John one one, and that is a lot of people would say that because John one one is in the beginning, and even the in the translations that you mentioned in the in the debate, NRSU SVUE, and I don't know about the Jewish Publications Bible, but the the other one, NLT was at it. I can't remember. But either way, um, all that is is pronoun- that is in the beginning. So what do you what do you think about that? Like that seems to be um weird for you know John 1-1 to be in the beginning, but Genesis 1-1 and the Septuagint not to be.
3: Well, so for one thing, we're talking about Greek. We're talking about when it was translated later. It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as the Hebrew. We know sometimes where the Septuagint translators did change things, and T. Wright talks about this in his his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. So we need to be careful with that. We should look at what the Hebrew says. And second, Heiser did address this in one of his lectures on Genesis 1. He notes that it actually does lack a definite article according to him. Uh, if you look at John 1, 1 in interlinear, I mean, the is in brackets. It's really in beginnings. Heiser said it, it should probably maybe be initially or starting out kind of thing, or, you know, I mean, it does not have that definite article necessarily. Now you could say in the Greek that it's sort of implied, which is fine, but don't then thrust that onto the Hebrew. The, the Greek is something distinct.
2: Okay. Yeah. So if it's the, the definite article is like very rarely ever used um, mm-hmm. in the Septuagint, like very rarely ever used. So it's it's kind of like, it's very vague as far as what, what it refers to. It's, it's used a lot of different ways. It's really interesting actually. Hey guys, sorry for the awkward break. I had obviously I had my interview with Michael and the awkward thing was that I realized later afterwards that the 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 critique that John Day did of the when God began to create view, that one that that Dr. Ross mentioned in the debate, that one, I found it later. I was wrong about the year, but that's all right because we got it now. And it's actually by chance free. Well, the first part, at least. So if you look here on my little screen, what we have is from creation to Abraham. From Christian to Abraham, further studies in Genesis 1 to 11, John Day. And look at that. You can press press view sample, and it'll take you right to it. You can read it. And it just happens to be in the first few pages, so that's awesome of the sample. Now, I don't feel like reading the whole thing and finding my notes here, so I made a little list of notes. And we're just going to get right into it, tell you my thoughts. and. I actually had a bit of a research little bonanza as uh, you know, people cite other people and I, I got a nice little nice little train of different sources. So you, we're gonna take a trip through the history of translations here today. So first of all, as far as what Dr. Ross said, he said specifically the indefinite article is implied by the text. I don't see how that's true at all. Uh, that it is frequently implied in temporal clauses He said it's frequently implied in in temporal clauses. I also don't see that. We can see this in the days, as in if you look at other temporal clauses in Genesis 1, that that would require that Genesis 1-1 to be a temporal clause. I don't see it as true either. Um, Now, just to be clear, the Subtuident doesn't have the definite article because it almost never has the definite article like it in, in Te Arche, that simply was rarely, rarely ever used Te arke specifically the Te was never used, the, the Te never used. So what that means is technically the text is a little ambiguous. According to some scholars, others are much more confident about it. We're going to talk about that. Now, on the other hand, he did say, "When the word was in the beginning, the word was with God," re- referencing John one one. And if he, what he's saying is that if we transfer, we, if we translate Genesis one one as when God began to create the heavens and the earth, and Septuagint, what many scholars would note, of course, is that John one one references Genesis one one in the in RK language. And why that's important is because if you trans you know what ross is trying to say here is that if you translate genesis 1 1 as when god began to create then you have to say that john 1 1 is when god began and that's super weird because you get stuff like when the word began it was with god or and you know he says the christology is all messed up which of course i don't see any reason to think that's true at all um i i I thought that was actually very odd. Um, That's not how language works, but we can continue. That's all right. So my first thoughts on John Day's article well, article, book, whatever, he mentions multiple arguments that people use to justify bear sheet being in the contract, many of the ones he brings up aren't very good. So I, I don't really have much to respond to On the other hand, he does say a lot of good things in his article. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to talk about on the other hand, it's uh, not as great as Dr. Ross said it was, which was actually upsetting for me because when, you know, he, he really hyped it up. So I was really hoping for a solid critique, but we'll get into it. That's okay. So, um, so he said, so John Day says, if it isn't a construct, we might more naturally have expected the text to read Beresheet Barot with the infinitive construct rather than bereshit bara. This is true to a degree. So. So this is true. I just don't know how strong the evidence is for um, in comparison to the overall scheme of things. Um, But I don't think John Day, I don't think he spends a lot of time, I don't think he puts a lot of emphasis in that. It's just like a small point. He does mention the famous Hosea 1-2 passage, where there is undoubtedly a contract noun before a perfect verb. There are many others, though. And Dr. Sun and I spoke about many other instances where a verb of time like beom or bet were in the construct with a finite verb, which of course, those are, as I specifically said here, verbs of time. And they're in the same form of Genesis 1-1, which is very important to mention because the, as we talk about in the video, these these, these words are, well, Dr. Sun would argue that they're interchangeable at least um oh by the way you definitely should check out this video here it is right here make sure to go check it out my channel what your pastor didn't tell you and then we have does this settle the genesis debate genesis 1 1 correctly translated make sure to check that out that is going to be really great if you want to really get into this topic and study it otherwise we can just continue here so um so right so he correctly says that the expressions of time Often lack a definite article, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's in the construct. So, you know, a popular, uh, popular argument in this conversation is that because Genesis one one does not have a definite article, that means that it necessarily isn't um, that necessarily, or it probably is is in the construct. I don't know if that's completely true. Um, I mean, there's obviously plenty of times where it is. Now, it might like you know, raise raise the argument just a little bit. But I don't think we can, you know, confidently see that I don't think we can confidently say that that's like the the the. I think there's a lot stronger arguments we can make. Let's say that. So later he says another argument claimed in support of taking verse one as a temporal clause is that it would parallel other creation texts which begin with when, for example, Genesis two four b to seven and Enuma Elish. It should be noted that the parallels with Enuma Elish and Genesis two four b seven are far from exact as the passages this lacks the words in the beginning and verse 5-6 refer parenthetically to what was not yet created. Whereas Genesis 1-2 refers to precisely what did g- exist at the time. Enumerable likewise lacks the words in the beginning. It does not start with a construct and begins by recounting a time when there was no heaven and earth rather than describing their initial creation as Genesis 1 does. Then it continues with a theogony of gods and we have to wait till tablets four and five of the New before we can read about the creation of heaven. So this one, this one really, I'm not a fan. To be, I'm not a fan. Um, the reason why I'm not a fan of this argument. The reason why I'm not much of a fan of this argument is because he's kind of misunderstanding it. So the main argument is that we're speaking of the structure of all these different creation accounts. Oh, by the way. He doesn't mention Assyria, Car 4, or Atrahasis. So, once again, we have—you'll you'll see a theme of this is that it's not very in depth, which I don't really understand. That, like, if you're gonna—I mean, I guess you wanted like a brief summary of like statements that could destroy the conversation. I guess I don't know, but he doesn't mention like some of the really strongest evidence that that's talked about in this conversation that we'll talk about later here. So. Comple- coupled with Enumilash and Genesis 2-4-7, that's at least four creation counts, which have a dependent clause, circumstantial clause, and main clause. The argument is that such an odd structure seems to occur in creation texts in the ancient Near East, but it so happens but it happens so often in creation texts that it can be coincidence. His counter-argument seems to be that the three texts, Genesis 1, 2, and enumeration, have different themes, vocabulary, and grammar, and therefore the structure isn't there. As Dr. Sun in our previous interview adds, previous interview, previous interview, he adds that this would be a great argument against the view if we're making argument from the themes, vocabulary and grammar, but it's not, we're arguing from the structure. To continue he says in reference to the traditional in the beginning translation this was the universal understanding of antiquity for over 1,000 years up to the time of rush without except i would rushy apparently without expe- exception all the ancient versions support rendering in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth which includes john john 1 1. the earliest of these the subjugant dating from the third century bce a time when other parts of the hebrew bible were, were still being written so if the temporal clause understanding is correct, the priestly author totally failed to convey his meaning clearly, and it was early forgotten. So this is, to a lot of people, is very strong evidence. I would say that it's it's definitely some evidence. Like, no doubt, I mean, it's super weird to say that the people, the Masoretics, the the, Masoretes, the Rashi, uh, Ebenezerah, they were able to get it right, you know, 880 onward but everyone before that could didn't as far as our writings go and what i've encountered is there's actually a lot of debate on this so uh well first of all you can see right here um you have the the targums uncleus neofidi pseudo jonathan as well as the subduja and vulgate now this is obviously going to be very strong if it's true that you know, all of these should be translated in or at the beginning. We'll talk about that. So he then asserts that all the translations before the Masoretic text, the text in question, had the in the beginning translation. This is understandable as many who take Baruchite to be the construct think Genesis one one and the Septuagint refers to the absolute beginning. I'm sure he knows that others, like Homestead, have put forth arguments that texts like Septuagint are vague at best, as there is no definite article today in between NRK. Heiser explains further here. Uh, if
1: anybody knows Greek, we have NRK. We do not have a definite article there. T- to be really strict, you would say in beginning or idiomatically to begin with, or when God made the heavens and the, you know, you, you initially would be a good word initially God created, but again that leaves an incomplete thought it, le- it it feels like it's it's leading somewhere as opposed to being you know definite point in time and in the in the, the case of the Septuagint here they do not have the article but sometimes with the the Septuagint translator you don't know if he just doesn't know Hebrew that well you don't know if he's just like oh, I just feel like paraphrasing a little bit today or uh, and it, it's, it's uneven. Again, it's not done by one person. It's all the way across the board. And there are some some things that just are completely unexplainable. I'll give you an example. Isaiah 9, 6. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. You know all those names? None of them are in the Septuagint. There it says he shall be called the Messenger of the Great Council. I love that verse. <laughs> Those of you who know me know I love that verse. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know if he's looking at a different Hebrew text that he's working with, or if that's just like something that popped into his head. Is it highly interpretive, or does he have a different text? You know, it, it's hard to know. I mean, there are mechanical ways to try to come up with possibilities and sort of rank the probabilities, but, you know, it's hard to know.
2: Now, regarding John 1 1, this is actually super interesting. There's actually. A lot of people are actually perfectly okay with saying John 1.1 1, 1 is using the same words as the Septuagint does. The, the NRSVU up e and the CEV uh, yep, CEB, CEB have no issue with John one being in the beginning, even though they translate Genesis 1.1 1, 1 as when God began to create. The thing is that they are doing different things within the text. John 1.1 1, 1 is saying that the word was there from the beginning, Later, we will read a few translations of Genesis 1, which will explain this better. So, Jack Sasson, uh, the you know, the guy who's almost certain of this view here, he notes his reasons for accepting sheet and construct. Now, this is important to mention because he Jack mentions some things that John Day doesn't. And I I don't know. If if I'm giving a criticism of view like I get, I don't know, maybe he just doesn't seem this argument's very strong. I don't know. We'll see. I personally think that this exegesis is really beyond dispute. first, because it's supported by grammar and syntax. Of course, he's referring to verse being in the construct. Second, because, so he's grammar and syntax, that's important. Second, because other creation narratives similarly open with temporal circumstantial clauses. And he, of course, he makes his argument like it's the context. So if we're going to think, all right, the original writer, what, it, what were they thinking in this time period all the other creation counts well not all of them but most of them have this nice great little structure here and i mean flat out you know genesis 2 has it and then why wouldn't genesis one? Line? if it's a possibility it seems like that definitely raises the probability there um now third because the first uh and his third reason, because the first of God's creative injunctions does not come until verse three. Now, uh, the only thing I would say to that is that someone like John Walton, John Walton, could say that John, Genesis one one is a summary statement of the entire passage. Which, in that case, that would still be true that the you know the first creative act doesn't come until Genesis, uh, Genesis one three when he says God says, "Let there be light." Which is all, is all right, but I guess maybe maybe Jack Tusson rejects that view and uh, like strongly rejects that view and thinks it's just not possible, I guess. Um, so in justification of the grammar and syntax, he notes all the examples of Bereshit are in temporal clauses. And the examples of Rashit in the absolute state with or without prefixed prepositions are found only when the term is used in the ceremonial context. So this is all in Jack Tusson's time to begin. And at the begin, at the bottom, he cites Skinner. Oh, I'm not supposed to read that. Awkward. Um. But he he lives out his evidence there. So, unlike Michael Heiser, someone like Martin Bastian agrees that texts like the Septuagint and the Targums refer to Genesis one one in that absolute sense. Now, this is of course might be an issue to some people. He notes while it may be true that this view of Christian creation never became problematic in many Near Eastern myths. The idea that there was an unformed chaos before God began creating does not sit well within a monotheistic worldview where God is the source of all being In Hellenistic times, which is, you know, you know, around the time of the Bible and specifically the New Testament. And Hellenistic times, the idea arose that such an uncreated, an uncreated chaos cannot have existed, and that the unique Godhead must have created the universe out of nothing, creation ex nihilo. And uh, he cites 2 Maccabees as an example of this. Also, the book of Jubilees doesn't include a primordial chaos in the creation account. Essentially, you know, we have all these different translations of Genesis 1.1, we have the Targum, all that kind of stuff. And each one of these, if the, the creation ex nihilo idea is out in you know the Hellenistic culture, what that's going to do is that's going to change how people interpret the passage. They're going to assume that's what Genesis 1-1 means, and then we're going to translate it into what they're thinking. That's obviously going to be an issue as we have to read the text as it is and not what our cultural bias says so. On the other hand, Gary Anderson thinks that they wouldn't have been thinking of creation nihilo. While modern commentaries have often thought the issue at stake in the first sentence of Genesis was that of creation nihilo, recent scholarship indicates that this doctrine was not held in Jewish circles at the time of Targumic composition. A more banal grammatical explanation must be proposed. In post-biblical Hebrew, the asendetic relative clause was no longer used the presence of such a clause in biblical text must have appeared as strikingly as unusual other such asyndetic relative clauses let's just be clear the relative relative clause what he means by that is the bear sheep in construct with a finite verb bar- bra and that structure there uh you know that's so that's what he's describing like how that works why that's in the Bible and he's what he's saying is it if it that it was greatly misunderstood by some rabbinic writers. So he says, uh, yeah. So he then cites two similarly constructed verses to Genesis one one, uh, which is Psalm eighty one six and the fam- famous Hosea one two passage. So this is very interesting. Okay. So Hosea one two is like that's the that's the text that. Uh, Invin Ezra uses where he uh, that's that says, Oh, okay, so Bereshit can be in the construct because we already have this other passage, Jose 1 2, which we know without a fact, without a doubt, is in the construct um, because it's Tilahat and the hot at the end that uh, that means that it has to be in the construct as Dr. Sun. and i talked about in our previous videos make sure to check that out um which means so it's supposed to mean when the lord began to speak through hosea but it seems like the the later translator in the fifth or sixth century he he wrote it as the lord spoke first to hosea now that's that's super interesting because there's there's some people that are well you know dr ross is like you're trying to say that the, the writers bef- before that, the the one the earliest ones to the Bible, didn't understand the grammar of the Hebrew? How, how, how crazy is that? But then we have an actual example of them not understanding the Hebrew. Which, of course, this makes sense, okay? So, um, you know, first century to, you know, uh, you know, something like 100 AD to 500 AD, you know the, their knowledge, early church fathers of Hebrew is pretty terrible. Well, I guess that's not relevant here, because they're they're Jewish. But anyways, um, but anyway, so it makes sense. I mean, from from a if we're looking back, like they don't have the computers we have today. They don't have the ability to look at the text. Sure, they like memorized it and all that. But you know, people have bad memory. Um, so we have a lot more today that we can analyze the text. And that, that explains why Robert, Robert Homestead could make such a strong argument in his Genesis relative clause. Oh, by the way, here's, um, here's his thoughts on the, the Septuagint and Genesis 1 1 and why it's vague enough to uh, be when God began to create. Um, so, yeah, the restrictive syntax of Genesis 1 1. Don't read that if you don't know Hebrew. But if you watch my video, then you can read it because you'll know Hebrew by then. Anyways, um, so yeah, he mentions another text, Psalm 81.6. I don't want to get into that today because it's not as relevant, um, but it is an interesting verse that you want to look it up uh, in two introductions to Midrash. Um, so, so like Bastian mentioned, the writers had trouble reconciling heaven and earth being created in verse one, but chaos and void in verse two. So he mentions the rendering of Genesis 1-2 by Targum Neophiti. It says, now the earth was tihi and bihi, meaning it was desolate with respect to people and animals empty in respect to all manner of agricultural work entries. This was like, what? They, they actually translated it this way. Like, you don't get that in the Hebrew, okay? Um, and just to be clear, this is what Ross is citing as, you know, the, Knockdown down evidence to say that, you know, it can't be one guy began to create because even before uh, the, the Masoretic text, people were translating as uh, an absolute, and of course, it is, it is an absolute here. That's, it, that's true. Uh, well, I guess there's a debate about that. But um, I, for my, mm, okay, at least Bastion agrees that it is. Gary Anderson also notes a series of super odd translations by the Targum translators. Uh, he says, a second means of understanding this cause is much more interesting or much more interpretive or monastic in nature. Uh, this tradition understood the phrase bare sheet to mean with, by means of, same wisdom God created. This translation is found in the fragmentary Targum and in Neophyti. From the beginning with wisdom, the word of the Lord created and perfected the heaven and earth. With wisdom from the beginning, the Lord created and perfected with heavens and earth. So this is <laughs> this is like what what are we reading here? Uh, I it's crazy. They they really took some interpretive uh jumps in the Hebrew. As you can see, they've taken Proverbs 822 with references with God creating the world with wisdom, and they've They've thrown their own words in there. Um, he continues this verse as well. Now look at 50 and the fragmentary Targum. It says, At the beginning, with wisdom, the word of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. With wisdom, the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. Now, what most people notice in this introduction of the word in the Targums, the inclusion of this verb alters the reading of Genesis 1 1 considerably. No longer can Genesis 1 1 be the first creative act. In a chronological sequence of creative acts as it was in Ancolus and Pseudo Jonathan. Rather by including the verb cycle to complete a crown or to bring to perfection, these two targums have removed Genesis 1-1 from the chronological framework. This is the view that most young earth creationists take, that Genesis 1-1 is a creative act in itself. It removes it from the rest of the chapter. It essentially makes it a summary statement. Surely the Targumist did not intend us to think that God created and perfected the heavens and the earth and then performed the creative acts of Genesis 1, 3 to 27. Instead, the Targumist has transformed Genesis 1, 1 into a prefatory statement about their entire creation process. Now, Anderson later notes that it could be coincidental, but dependence is definitely possible as John could be referencing an early form of Targum. Forgive my misspelling there. Uh, in other words, uh, we don't know if John 1 1 has a different, a different, maybe not even the Septuagint, maybe a different translation, maybe like a, a previous Targum or they're there. Maybe they're both referencing that, or it's also, of course, it's also possible the Targum is referencing John 1 1 and proverbs, but either way these, these super, super weird, uh, interesting scenario he- here is uh, what what it what it means to me at least is that although i don't want to say that you know the writers the, the translators are the septuagint um, which of course heiser would say that we have to you know we have to be honest with ourselves and realize like they made some absolutely crazy translations they weren't perfect uh you know there's multiple people it was obviously going to be a really difficult job for them at the same time um Like, um, sure, it is evidence that, it it is some evidence that, you know, all these different translations um, that so many scholars at least think that it should be translated as, you know, in the beginning. And um, I'll leave leave that up to you to decide what you want to think about that. Here's uh, me presenting different views. I'm not going to tell you what the right one is. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments. So, I mean, yeah, that that's that's a, that's a few options you can take, guys. And um, I hope you really enjoyed this video. Um, make sure to like and subscribe, check out. Um, yeah. Feel free to read the rest of John Day's work here. predictive Syntax of Genesis 1. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, yeah. I um, let's uh, get back to the show. That's all I got for you. That was a lot of work <laughs> there. But uh, a lot of a lot of fun there. Any last thoughts? Anything you want to let everyone else know about?
3: No, I think we covered it all. I mean, I, I enjoyed the debate. I'm glad it happened. I, I was happy with the result of it. Uh, I don't. Again, I don't see that it would be. I don't see that it was demonstrated at all that Genesis and evolution are not compatible. I think once we start reading Genesis in its ancient or Eastern context, they're definitely compatible because they're talking about different areas of inquiry. They're not overlapping in that sense. So. Again, I, I I respect my opponent. I thought he did well. I just don't think that was ever demonstrated. And again, I hold to my guns when I say young earth creationism is a degenerate research program. It is failing in science, in history, and now biblical interpretation, it's falling by the side. There's no reason to hold to this view anymore. It's time to move on.
2: Ouch. OK. <laughs> well, I mean, everyone, I, res- yeah. I
3: respect them. But again, I, I have to say that because I think that's what the data shows.
2: Wow. Okay. So everyone, I, uh, everyone make sure to go subscribe all the two people that aren't any, aren't already subscribed to Michael's channel here. Um, let's, uh, I hope everyone, uh, you know, like put your comments in the, in the, in the below, make sure to check out his channel. Feel free to check out mine, different reviews on Genesis, interviewing scholars. Um, Michael, this has been a lot of fun. I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too, man. Appreciate it.